1: Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I'm your host, Samurai, and across the board from friends is our good pal, Big Willie. Hello, hello. <laughs> we are back, and this week we have a special episode, one of many we hope to do in the future of uh, uh, what we call the Trillo GG TMC episodes, and uh, this first time around we're going to do uh, Nicholas Wending Refn's uh, Pusher Trilogy, which is... Uh, not not so much a trilogy in narrative, but definitely a trilogy in tone. I would say.
2: Yeah, yeah I guess sort of the theme of um, low to mid level criminals, uh, as opposed to following yeah one, one character as a as a trilogy is apt or more conventionally to do. So we
1: uh, we got a lot of films to cover. So we'll save our thank yous and whatnot for the end of the show. So we're gonna pretty much just take a break. We we'll make this intro nice and short and sweet. And, uh, just get to the, uh, get to the films because there's a lot of content to go over in this, this episode. So I think that's about it. We'll go ahead and take a break and we'll be back after this.
3: First, the screen was silent. Then it talked. Then color. Now the greatest advance of them all. Movie Meltdown. Come check out Movie Meltdown. News, reviews, and interviews about your favorite thing, movies.
4: Even better is it's going to be in 3D. Awesome.
5: Yes. Well, they (laughs) quit. For the love of God, putting Keanu Reeves and stuff. No,
4: they will not.
0: (laughs) I don't like any of this. (laughs) Nobody does.
4: It was bad anyway, but it got so much worse every time that horrible little CGI bastard was on the screen.
0: There's 3D boobies. 3D running around
4: boobies. I liked
5: how quick it got to the violence.
0: Yeah, it did Like, it didn't instantaneously, mess oh, it was yeah.
5: violence. That's a good way to start a movie. And blood. And I was like, yay!
4: Right on the video box, you uh, could yes. look at it and go, well, this is yeah, going to be right. crap.
5: And then All then- right!
4: Movie Meltdown.
3: For movie geeks. By movie geeks. It's revolutionary. It's exciting. It's newer than television. It's... Movie Meltdown.
1: All right, welcome back, everybody. We'll jump into our first film. We're just, you know, we're just not taking any prisoners this morning. We're just going right at it. So uh, we'll jump into the first film of the Pusher trilogy, which is known as Pusher. And uh, I'll kick it over to you for a plot synopsis.
2: Okay, uh, IMDb is not going to be of any service today because they're. Um their plot synopsis is rather spoilerish. So basically, what it's about is Frank, who is a drug pusher on the streets of Copenhagen. Uh, it's about him and his sidekick Tony, and sort of their um, their day to day activities and their quest to, uh, I guess, um, all do what they do. And uh, along the way, certain things happen that uh, force Frank to make some hard decisions uh, and quick decisions. Um, to uh to make things right so that may sound a bit ambiguous and a bit stumbled over but it was better than the spoiler filled plot (laughs) synopsis that uh, imdb provided (laughs)
1: nice (laughs) i can understand that yes thanks imdb can pretty much provide 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 the uh spoilers synopsis sometimes all right so I guess I'll go ahead and start going over some notes about this film. Uh, this film is from 1996, uh, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. I think it's how you say his name. I think it's Winding or Winding. I think it's Winding actually, so uh, not easy to pronounce. Uh, this is the first of the Pusher trilogy, and this one, the Pusher trilogy, basically focuses on people in the drug trade in uh, Copenhagen, as they say, in Denmark. And uh, this one focuses on a drug dealer named Frank. And uh, Frank is a pretty interesting character. He's very, you know, he's a very cool guy. You know, he nothing really rattles Frank, or at least you think so in the beginning. And uh, he hangs out with this other character named uh, Tony. Uh, and uh, I, I'm only, I, I would assume maybe it's supposed to be Tony, but you know, it's spelled with two N's, so I'll just go with Tony.
2: No, I think it is Tony because I think Tony is a, a Danish name because um, I, I've known of some Danish or Nordic people with the name Tony.
1: Yeah. The only Danish I know is cheese. So <laughs> <there> we- <laughs> what
2: about, what about his good friend apple?
1: Yeah. You know, <laughs> apple Danish is good too. Yes. So, uh, you know, Frank and Tony are, you know, they're basically in this bromance of, uh, best friendship. Uh, they should start a podcast because they're, they're very tight. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of great scenes of them, uh, you know, joking around with each other. A really great scene of them in the car joking around with each other where eventually something is said about somebody's mother and everything just totally changes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Frank's very charismatic, but he's also very firm when he needs to be. You know, uh, he's, a, he's a typical, well, maybe not a typical drug dealer, but, you know, like a lot of drug dealers, you know, they they can be very charismatic and stuff until you do them wrong. And that'll come up again here in a little bit when we start talking about Milo. So... Um, not only do they have the scenes of them, you know, hanging out and there's a weird scene in a bar with them hanging out and messing around with each other. It's shot in slow motion and Reffin throughout the trilogy uses slow motion in weird ways. I, I don't know what, what his logic behind his slow motion is. It's a little odd to me because most people use slow motion for action or for something serious to happen. He uses it for scenes of, you know, a couple dudes just wrestling with each other.
2: Um yeah, you know, that's the thing. The film is shot mostly sort of documentary style, uh on like high def. And that I think initially was probably a uh, done twofold, obviously to give it a realistic feel and also budgetary constraints. But yeah, I noticed that too, that the slow motion is used at sort of odd moments. Um you'll have to forgive me, my my reviews of the three films aren't quite as thorough as they usually are because I'm still getting over a flu. Um, but I, I yeah, I did notice that the, the slow-mo was used in ways that doesn't normally accentuate uh, as you would expect from, from film.
1: Right, right. We uh, we also start to see that uh, Reffin is very uh, obsessed, I think, at least in this trilogy, with the, the idea of the downward spiral, of the uh, loss of control. Uh, you, we'll talk about this quite often through all three of these films, but everything always kind of starts out normal uh, in some ways as normal as they can in this world and they just seem to completely spiral out of control so quickly so we start to see that in this film too about halfway through and i don't want to give away too much because i don't want to give away the plot obviously but uh there's definitely a lot of spiraling in this film in these films uh i actually want to say also that i think this film it's weird because this one was shot in 96 and i think the next one was wasn't shot until 2003 maybe or two thousand four actually. Or well probably yeah. probably shot in two thousand three, but it didn't come out till two thousand four. And I wanna I think that this film might look the best. I don't know if the other two were shot cheaper.
2: Um I don't know. I didn't really notice a substantial well no, I did notice that the I thought actually quite the opposite, that the second and third ones were a little slicker. Um But I wouldn't say that it was a, a substantial uh drop off yeah
1: yeah i don't know I, 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 the way i watched these was this i'd seen pusher along uh, a while back actually when we first started talking about doing this trilogy i, I rented uh pusher from netflix and uh, i watched it and then you know i waited to watch two and three until i knew we were going to do the show so to watch it again this trilogy i decided to watch two and then three and then i went back and watched one and you can watch them like that because like i say they're they're a trilogy in tone more than they're a trilogy in narrative, and they kind of just pick a character to stick with. So uh, it, you can watch it out of order. It's probably more rewarding to watch it in order, obviously, but uh, you can watch it either way because a lot of characters rotate in and out of these films. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, there's a scene in this film where Frank's making a deal in the bathroom with a guy, and it and then in the third film, this guy is, and I don't think this is giving anything away, this third film, this guy is actually Milo's daughter daughter's boyfriend and it just keeps it keeps doing that it just keeps rotating characters in and out so if you pay attention and if you really watch the trilogy it kind of rewards you for that behavior so the uh let's see what else i got here uh he, he really likes to i think what i one of the things i like about this trilogy is, is Reffin's a big fan of shooting characters uh walking from behind and then walking into uh bars or or you know seedy restaurants or anything he likes to just follow him into a scene and i, I kind of like that uh, i've always liked that in films when people do that and or they shoot through doorways it's one of the reasons why i like uh quentin tarantino so much he likes to shoot through doorways or shoot out of trunks things like that just kind of odd choices but i like that you know he, he does there's a lot of scenes where him following frank in this film and just kind of walking back and forth and and frank will walk into a situation he'll keep the camera on him do it all in one take basically and then you know he'll follow him back out. And, uh, I think that's really well done, uh, especially for a cheap film. That's obviously, I think, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but I think it's pretty much shot on, on uh, video of some sort. Of course, this was 96. So I don't know, but, uh, to be able to move the camera around, like they move it around this, cause almost the whole thing's shot handheld. So very documentary like.
2: Yeah. And that might've been a film, the film's blessing. Like I'd said, it really does give it that intimate, realistic, uh, feel, you know, a lot of times, When things are shot on film, it gives it a very cinematic feel, and um, if you're going for a realistic look, um, and we're going to keep banging this drum with all three films, is if you shoot it on film, sometimes you have that – it's almost like if you're looking at a lion through a cage at the zoo. There's not the sense of danger, but if you were in the cage, even if the lion was on the other side of the cage, you're going to be a lot more scared, and it's like that with these films. There isn't quite that sense of disconnect because of how real this feels.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It it feels like a documentary big. I mean, you you hear that thrown about quite a bit. I mean, people say, "Oh, it's shot in documentary style," or "Oh, it's shot in handheld, <coughs> so it feels like a documentary." You know, this film really does feel like a documentary in some ways. Uh really the only the reason why I wouldn't say it doesn't feel like a documentary at all is because there's two more films obviously that follow characters. And the second film, you know, follows Tony, uh which is an interesting uh, mix. And then the third film covers Milo, which Milo is somebody that Frank has to deal with in the film, uh kind of his supplier, so to speak, and Milo comes off as this charismatic uh bad cook who uh <laughs> you know has this uh this uh tough guy that works for him, this bodyguard that works for him, and uh, he'll feature more prominently again again. well, he won't feature more prominently, but he'll show up again in the trilogy and uh it's it's interesting uh Milo' is, he's got this uh, very likable, kind of goofyish look to him very father figure like and to frank it seems uh but when things go wrong you can see that milo is actually a uh well he's an evil bastard so <laughs> you, you can see it uh see it kind of fall apart and you know frank is ultimately a, you know his character is ultimately a, just a piece of shit anyway uh, yeah i mean the way he treats his his uh, his uh lady uh making all these false promises and things and and everything he kind of gets his uh I'm not giving anything away by saying he kind of gets his come ups and come up. It's toward the end of the film, but uh, he's ultimately just a jerk. And uh, as charismatic as he is and stuff, uh, you kind of just want to punch him in the mouth.
2: (laughs) Well, the thing is, he's 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 and this, I think, is sort of intentional. He's he's charismatic when he's holding all the cards when he's not. He's just like any other desperate piece of shit trying to jockey for position in this underworld.
1: Right, right, right.
2: Right, who who will lie, beg, cheat, steal, do anything it takes to kind of gain their footing, and that's the way they all are on different levels. It's a matter of ability, though, and and how much control you have at any given moment. Right, right,
1: yeah, that's uh, basically my notes for uh, the pusher uh, first <clears throat> segment. We're we're going to try to, in all honesty, guys, doing three films is a, is a big ordeal for us, so we're trying to keep this on the straight and narrow. So we're not going to make any apologies, but we just want to say that uh, yeah, we're not going to go on the depth that we normally go because of uh if we did uh I would have to I don't I don't know what I'd put out in two parts probably so we're going to we're going to keep it lean and mean so I'm going to kick it over to you for what little note you might have as well
2: yeah sure and again I do want to apologize to everyone um that listens to this because I didn't want to sell these films short but quite honestly I, I was so bedridden with the flu that I didn't even want to watch films um when I was so sick but I I had a show to do and you know um i 've taken probably half the notes I normally would and and um, yeah, so I apologize up front plus we 've been having technical difficulties to pull the curtain back, major technical difficulties thus far, but uh, yeah we 're going to try and pump through these as quick as we can, uh, and that 's not to sell the film short. um The first thing you know we talk about documentary style, but one thing that 's done very cinematically, very stylishly that opens the pusher films up, all of them you 'll see it 's a recurring theme is I love, and I've never seen this before. I love the introduction of the characters where you almost get, you get the outline of their face, but they're shrouded in black and you can't see their eyes mm-hmm. or sort of the inside of their face, but you see the outside of their face and sort of their, their general sort of uh, outline. Yes. Yes. You very silhouette like. Yes. You would get a silhouette. It would say Frank or, or, uh, Vic or Tunny or Milo and they're shrouded in black. And I really, really like that the way it starts off each episode, mm-hmm. uh, with that, um, like we'd said, you know, this is a very gritty, unglamorous look at at the life of a dealer. Um, you know, there's no no good guys. There's no romanticizing of that lifestyle in this, and I really like that because a lot of times, cinematically, we do glorify uh, the criminal life. Um, so I like that. Uh, Refn was able to do this, still make the characters interesting and compelling, um, but show sort of, but not make it sort of a uh like a a WAN ad or or you know uh <laughs> basic I, i'm trying to, i'm struggling to find out words here no i um, think i think
1: i think you know he takes the glory out of it i, th- I think sometimes yes. in america when it comes to drug dealers we kind of glorify them a little bit in our films just a little bit
2: yeah we do i mean they almost become like robin hood
1: you yes, know yes exactly and
2: uh, and that's a shame but um <clears throat> there's um a lot of the stuff with Tony and Frank reminded me uh, that in this post-pulp fiction world, how far-reaching Tarantino's influence is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, sort of the little, <laughs> the day-to-day stuff um, that people talk about, um, you know, that, that criminals like us are just people, and they talk about normal people things. And a lot of the stuff with Tunney and Frank is, is pretty good. And that's the thing, being able to, Script realistic sounding dialogue isn't as easy as it sounds. No,
0: um,
2: and and they ref pulls it off uh, effortlessly. Um, there is some one sort of <laughs> kind of gross bit in the first one where um, they're talking about their sexual ex- escapades, and uh, <laughs> Tony says that he basically he blew his load on this girl's face, <laughs> and uh, and she wanted, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, oh, and yeah. she wanted. She wanted him to piss the sperm off her face, <laughs> and I was just—I was stunned. I was like, "Wow, what kind of a fucking pig that yeah. you just blow your load on?" For her, that she wants you to piss the load off of her face, but I don't know. Who am I to judge? I guess.
1: Yeah, and you know, when you watch the second film, you kind of see some things about because the second film covers uh, or follows Tunny, and you kind of see that maybe he might be just talking a lot of shit because uh, that seems to be his character's. Uh, MO is that he likes to talk about a game.
2: Yeah, you know what? At the time I didn't see it, but I should have uh, put two and two together and you're right because we see and I guess we'll get to Tony probably a lot more. Um yeah, no that that's that's spot on actually. Um there's this sort of running thing between the two of them that it's a very guy thing where um they're eating at a restaurant and, and Tony wants to try uh Frank's drink and and he sticks his finger in to try it, and this goes on a few times, and and they always say to the other one, "Don't stick your pussy finger in my drink." Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, it's it's like a couple dudes hanging out. I mean, it's not. I mean, I don't know if me and you were hanging out. I don't think I'd I'd say that to you. But uh, well, you we're know, married men, right? It's yeah. a little different. Yeah. So they, but it's like a couple guys hanging out. You know, they don't have any uh, manners with each other, and. And Tunney's kind of a follower to Frank. It's obvious Frank's the leader. And, and again, you know, you'll know, you find out more why that happens in the second film. But, uh, yeah, there's these scenes of them that I called basically a bromance because it's obvious they really enjoy each other's company. Uh, they just want to hang out with each other more than they want to hang out with anybody, actually.
2: Yeah, and I think even um, Frank's girlfriend says at one point, um, Frank tries to brush her off by saying he's got business to do and she says oh come on you know you're just going to go fuck around with Tony all day like that's all they do is <laughs> yeah. you know they go lay about somewhere and go to a bar and have a drink and, and kind of get into shit together right right and that's all they do and, and it's funny they they get drunk and and high and then they end up kind of playing around with some knives and I'm thinking it's probably not the safest thing to do guys
0: <laughs>
2: you know like they're wrestling with real knives okay. like, This this may, this 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 you know, you're, you you keep tempting the fates here, but um, that's just the kind of guys they are. Uh, another thing that I think was apparent throughout this is, um, obviously, America being sort of the epicenter of film, um, and with that being the case, uh, the gangster film and and the romanticism of it, um, you can see that the the um, how romantic, to sound, how romantic uh, uh, that drug dealer or gangster life is, even in Denmark, because Tony's always wearing the American uh, sweater, um, Frank in his apartment. You know, he's got a lot of American film posters. And the one that to me was the most, um, obviously the most indicative of, of what he felt, how he looked at himself was he had the Tony Montana <clears throat> little po- uh, sort of uh, postcard in his mirror, right. that this is what he aspired to that, you know, you always get that, that these <clears throat> These low-level gangsters and dealers fancy themselves the next sort of Tony Montana. They're going to work their way up through the ranks and rise to the top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what else do I got here? One thing that I we're going to keep coming back to throughout this, and I've already mentioned it a few times, is not only does this look real, not only does it sound real, but the casting. Everyone in these films looks like real people. This is, goes back to sort of the seventies school of uh, filmmaking, where you don't get a lot of real, real, real pretty faces. Everyone looks real. Sure, there's some people that are all right looking, but um, you know, there's no Brad Pitts or Angelina Jolies to be seen here. These look like real people that yes. you identify with a lot more. Um, it strikes more of a chord with you as a result.
1: Yes. Yes, I really agree with that. That's the thing. I think the reason the trilogy works so well is because these are actors, other than Mads Mickelson, these are actors that I'm not familiar with at all.
2: Yeah, neither was I. Mickelson was the only one I I was familiar with either. Um, a lot of them work more in, in uh, Denmark. Um, there's a scene where um, Radovan, who is uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly, Radovan is uh, Milo's uh, muscle, his right hand man. But he's he's not your typical kind of uh, thug. He he's he's very compassionate. Um, he gets his hands dirty i think out of necessity more than out of uh greed or or bloodlust
1: yeah yeah
2: um, he basically wants to better himself and and the thing i you know one thing i find very 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 interesting about this film and i told my wife this i am always interested to see um immigrants how they are represented and um, how their experience is represented in other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, Milo is a Serb. He's a Serb. Or he's Yugoslavian. Um, as is Radovan. Um, you get uh, throughout the film. You get um, Turkish. You get Polish. You get um, uh, Albanians. I mean, you get a wide variety of people that aren't from Denmark. They're not right. Danish. Right. And uh, I'm really. I find that very compelling, interesting stuff to see their how they fit into this and how they're trying to get up or sort of climb up here um i don't know why i just have always found that very interesting looking at world film to see how immigrants are represented in the films
1: yes yes i mean that's another thing that uh you know world cinema does better than american cinema american cinema is very focused on america whereas you know world cinema teams seems to be more focused on the world at large and i don't know if that's Just because, you know, other countries might think more outside the box than America does, maybe. But, yeah, this whole trilogy deals with uh, immigration and the drug trade. And even at one point, human trafficking, which is really bizarre. Uh, So, yeah, it deals with all those things and deals with it very well. I agree with that. I like the way the the immigrant uh, angle was handled in the films.
2: Yeah, and this is handled in a lot of, you know, even a film like Dirty Pretty Things, which is a British film that I really like, starring one of our, starring one of our, Tiwetel uh looks at a less criminal uh, lifestyle for immigrants uh, in another country, but nonetheless very compelling. But anyway, I, I was kind of digressing, as I'm known to do. Um, <clears throat> Radovan and Frank, basically Frank is given extensions to come up with some money that he owes Milo, and uh, Radovan has been sort of... Uh, Put with Frank to make sure Frank comes through on some money and they're driving and, uh, Radimalan tells him about, uh, an experience he had where, um, he was, they went to collect on some guy and he basically, he cut the kneecap right out of this guy's leg. Yeah. And, and he's not saying it, um, sort of with his cock in his hand, you know, uh, he's saying it very regretfully and, and you can see in his eyes as he's sort of recounting it. Um, how horrific it was! It's almost like when someone goes to war and they have to do things um, that they don't like. Uh, that's how he recounted it. It's something he isn't proud of, but it's something that because of his line of work he he had to do.
1: Yeah, I think he he's one of these kind of people that's gotten themselves in a situation, and uh, he happens to be good at it. And but now he wants out of it, and he's wanted out of it for a while. So, but you know, unfortunately, he is good at it, and what else is he going to do right now? So, yeah, you can see the regret. I guess is the right word or, you know, maybe just, I don't know what the right word might be. Maybe it's not regret, but you can see that he doesn't enjoy his job that much.
2: mm -hmm. Uh, and then this is followed up by a scene and I'm not giving anything away. There's, there's a scene where a junkie that they go to collect from. and, And of course, you know, junkies aren't very reliable when it comes to collecting. Um, the junkie dies and, that was a powerful, punchy moment, and normally a throwaway character in a film like this, it it wouldn't it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't impact you at all. But this that moment for me was a very powerful moment.
1: Yeah, I'll agree, and it has a it does have a punch to the gut feeling to it. Yeah, uh, it's really kind of crazy.
2: <laughs> well, that, that's the thing throughout these films is the deaths in these films. There's no throwaway deaths. Uh, again, the death aspect or the murder aspect. Uh, in these films is not romanticized or glamorized. It's very brutal, nasty, foul stuff.
1: Yes, very nasty.
2: Uh, oh, yeah, big time. Um, another one I have here, it seems like Danish people, like Danish natives, uh, they seem to be a little bit more racist or maybe it's just this this uh, uneducated element. Um, you get a lot of uh, uh, racial slurs thrown around. Um, Throughout the film, particularly by Tony and and Frank, yes, <laughs> uh, um, that I won't get into, but it just seems very much so uh, like that. Um, there's a great line by um, by Frank's on again off again girlfriend Vic, where she's basically a prostitute um, at a or like a call girl, and uh, sure and Frank are at the club or something, and she says to Frank that she's not a whore, she's a champagne girl, and it just goes to show that, you know, the life she lives, how she kind of justifies it to herself, or kind of, um, you know, how, how she alibis it basically—that that she's not this, she's that. When really, let's call a spade a spade, that's what she is.
1: Yeah, Frank even says, uh, "What's the difference?" I think he even says that to her. What's the difference? Yeah. So.
2: Yeah, no, he uh, he does, and, and again, just you know, the sort of um, denial that a lot of these people are in, and they don't really open their eyes and look at what they are and where they're at. The um, another note I have near the end here is that I just found that, and as it's apt to be with uh, uh, everyone, is just so unreliable and and dodgy. It's like you can't count on what anyone says in this because, well, for the most part, I mean, everyone just fuck, it's like, you know, you're, everyone's ripping off everyone left and right and undercutting everyone and making promises they can't keep out of desperation. And it's just a very desperate, unreliable um, society.
1: Yes. Yes. I totally agree
2: so, with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the last note I have, sort of, I guess, a minor criticism. Um, I felt, the, to, for me, this film dragged a little bit in the final act, for me anyway. Um I don't know. I just It it, it kind of is supposed to ramp itself up more to a feverish pitch, but um, I felt it started to drag a little bit uh, by the time I got to the third act. But I don't know. That's just me, maybe. Uh,
1: No, I think it does drag a little bit. It takes a little while to get where it needs to go toward the end, but uh, it pays off well. It does just have a slow back third a little bit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And those are pretty much all the notes I got, actually, for this one. Alright,
1: so I'll go ahead and go over my MVT and my Make or Break. I'm going to go with the Make or Break scene being the scene with the the, uh, the addict that Frank and Radovan have to uh, confront. And the reason why is because that scene in most films would be like your maybe your action payoff as to how bad these guys are. But between Radovan and Frank, you can tell neither one of them like doing this uh, tough guy stuff. Neither one of them like it. Frank, obviously is old money by a bunch of people, and the reason why he never can get his money back is because Frank's just not that guy. You know, he's mm-hmm. that's why I say about the carrot charisma. I mean, when he get now, when he gets desperate, he gets it nasty and stuff. But Frank's never been desperate before, and now he is. So, uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with that scene because it it has a crazy payoff, and it's it's sad at the same time. It's kind of visceral and uh, very interesting, especially the also the the car ride to that scene between him and Radovan. It's very interesting. Uh, some more of that kind of banter that we get from Tarantino films in there. Very interesting. Uh, My MVT for the film uh, is uh, I'm going to have to go with uh, Refn. It's going to be hard not to go with Refn in all these films because even though I don't think I'm going to go with Refn in part two and maybe not even part three, but I'm definitely going to go with him in this first one. uh, I like the way he shoots these movies. Uh, It's the most documentary, quote-unquote, documentary style I've ever seen. Uh, It really just feels like he's following these people around and a lot of times even though these are all actors they don't it doesn't really feel like acting so i really enjoyed that uh, mads mickelson's great in it uh, the guy that plays uh uh frank is great i think his name is kim bodnia uh, i've heard that he's a really good actor uh, i've only seen the pusher trilogy so i'm going to have to look around so but uh yeah i'm going to have to go with uh Refn on this first film uh, my score for the film is uh, a 7.5 i really enjoyed this film. Uh, it's a good appetizer for the uh, the main course that's coming up, and uh, I had a lot of fun with it, so as, as depressing as it is, I had a lot of fun with it, so I'll kick it over to you for your ratings.
2: Alright, um, my make or break is the exact same as yours. It's sort of two scenes that follow each other. It's the first one where um, we really sort of get um, get to see Radovan, who, who, in all of this, despite me being having one of the nastier jobs, is One of the most uh, human or compassionate of these characters, he might be the most uh, redeemable uh, by a a country mile, in fact, in, in all three films. Um, you know, because really he's only doing this to better himself. So then he can follow up his dream of uh, opening a restaurant. Right. So, um, you know, Radawan kind of implores Frank a little bit to, to kind of have a dream and do this and do that. And it doesn't come across as, as, cheesy or saccharine or anything like that, but you know, they're, they're kind of bantering back and forth. And then, yeah, like you said, the horror of this scene and, and how commendable it is that this isn't played for laughs, almost like, you know, Marvin getting his head blown off in, um, in Pulp Fiction. right? Uh, it's it's played very straight and very serious and very nasty. So that was the make-or-break scene for me. Uh, the MVT, is mine is also Refn. Um This was a low-budget film that doesn't really look low-budget. I mean, it looks real. It looks natural, gritty. Um, and again, those aren't easy things to pull off. Try and pull that off. And <laughs> you'll see how unnatural and unreal uh, and unconversational the dialogue is going to feel. So uh, that's he's my MVT of the film. Uh, my score for the film is a little bit higher than yours. It's an 8 I did really like the film, and I was really impressed with the acting. And quite frankly, it's and quite frankly, it's uh, it's a part of Denmark that I'd never thought existed. I mean, that sounds naive, but you know, I picture Denmark as this very nice, uh, kind of uh, upper middle class country, a very affluent country, right. you know, in, in uh, the Nordic portion of uh, Europe. So to see sort of the seedy, gritty, nasty. Um, Side of it, I thought was really eye-opening. It gave it a very dangerous feel that would make me pause about peeing in a back alley if I was ever outside of a pub in Denmark.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, seems like a dangerous place, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> it it does, and that's the thing to make it look that dangerous. I thought was impressive, and I do want to say, don't didn't you find that junkie that they went to visit look like the singer from the Pogues?
1: Yes, yes, he did, <laughs> he did. <laughs> Very much uh, so,
2: actually. (laughs) Yeah, those are all the notes I have. Like I said, an 8 out of 10. A good, great, great, great film. Nice.
1: All right, so that is part one. We're going to take a short break and come back and do part two.
4: What's up, kiddies? You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the only show crazy enough to tackle the Brian Bosworth classic, Stone Cold.
1: Buddy, we're back with our review of part two of the pusher trilogy this one's called uh pusher two i believe it's called uh with blood on my hands is the subtitle so i think i'll uh i'll go ahead and do the uh plot synopsis for this one but before i do let me uh let me look over it real quick here and make sure that we're not going to get ourselves in any uh what's the word you use spoilery territory <laughs> yeah <laughs> that spoilery word is hard for me to say it's like like celery is hard for me to eat so let's see here let's see i'll just say that uh, this film basically follows Tunney, uh and this he's you know released from prison again uh this time he has his mind set on changing his broken down life but it is easier said than done so that's basically all i'm going to go into for the plot and and, uh i'll go ahead and kick it over to you and we'll get started on this pusher two with blood on my hands
2: okie dokie Okay, so the second one I'm just noticing opened on Christmas uh, in Denmark. not exactly the feel good Christmas movie you want to see with the family, but um I guess that's probably more testament to how popular these films were in Denmark. I'd imagine I guess so <laughs> <laughs> um, this one opens up right away uh, and it shifts to tiny like you'd said, and it's everything shot the same way as it has been throughout with a few little flourishes that we'll get to um. Tony's in prison. He's about to get out, and uh, a great little scene where he's in his cell, and his cell looks almost like a, a like a little motel room—not a motel, but like a little uh, dorm room or something.
1: Yeah, I was really confused. I didn't know if he was in prison or if he was in college.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> saved by the Bell, the college—Saved by the Saved by the Bell, of college years. <laughs> yeah.
1: I was waiting for Zach to come out. <laughs>
2: I'd like to see him slam Zach and screech his head in the locker, man. Then, uh, of course, you get all AC coming in in his acid-washed jeans and cowboy boots to save the day. Nice. Um, <laughs> how we got from Danish drug dealers to Latino mullets, I have no idea. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it opens up with this great scene where uh, Tunny, uh, Tunny's a cellmate is talking to him about conquering his fear. And uh, basically sending a message to to other criminal types, uh, essentially, and what, what it takes to do that. Um, and we also get a reveal that Tunney, as much as he's a bit of a lackey and a low-level guy, that his, his father is someone called the Duke. Mm-hmm. And anytime you get someone in a film called the Duke, usually they have some position of authority and uh, prominence. And that's certainly the case here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you got somebody named the Duke, uh, I mean, of course, you know, my, my mind immediately went to, uh, Isaac Hayes and escape from New York. I'm sure yours did too. And, yep. and, uh, you know, I knew that, you know, when he got out and he was going to see the Duke, I knew the Duke had some weight behind him. Uh, so yeah, you you name your character, the Duke. Uh, there's some seriousness behind that character.
2: Yes. Um, so Tony gets out of prison and, um, and I like also again, of course, as is the same with all three parts, we get the same sort of stylish intros with the, the shrouded kind of character silhouettes mm-hmm. uh, again, you know, kind of I, this time I, I was great for it and It kind of hyped me up. I'm like, okay, you know, who's, uh, who's Kurt the cunt and who's this and who's that? All right, let me see them. And, uh, <laughs> I got some, I got some interesting things to say about Kurt the cunt in a little while. So <laughs> one of the great cinematic names, Kurt the cunt, um, <laughs> So, anyway, this film, the first. The first thing I noticed when um, when Mads Mikkelsen's character Tony is uh, is coming back um, home is that, and I noticed in the first film too that fuck, these films are always very overcast and very gloomy, very moody. It's there's never the sun's never out.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. The sun is never out. I don't think there's any sunshine in any three of these films.
2: No, it's uh, it's either overcast or it's nighttime. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like they borrowed two things from the English for this. The overcast vibe and the word cunt. (laughs) You know, they borrowed both of them to great effect. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't remember. Oh, I know what it was. When we watched Vice Squad, we talked about the laughably bad um, fake tattoos. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, And I got to say, the tattoos in this... They they're clearly fake, um, but not clearly. But I know they're fake because I know Mads Mikkelsen doesn't have respect tattooed <laughs> on the back of his head. Yeah. But the fake tattoos in the, these films look fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. The ones on uh, Mads in particular, they look really good.
2: They look really good, and they almost look like they they're aged. I mean, they're a little bit faded, so. They, they look really real. I mean, I, I was really impressed with them in all the films.
1: Yeah, actually, if you watch the first film, the respect uh, looks a lot. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Fresher. It looks like it's a, more of a new tattoo, and of course, it seems like they made it. You know, they aged it a little while, a little bit for the second film. Very wise. Which,
2: uh, yeah, it was very wise, and I wouldn't have noticed that. And it's those kind of little details that make Raffin a, a great, great filmmaker. Yes. Um. The the one thing I want to say, you know, Mickelson in the first one, and of course he's more the focal point in this, is I gotta say what a talent he is, because the only two roles I could really recall seeing him in were as um a Tristan, I think it was, in a night what is it, not a knight's tale, um King Arthur, the yes. Clive Owen film. Yes, yes. Uh, and he was he was great in that, and of course as uh was it Le Chiffre? Yeah the Bond villain in uh, in Casino Royale. Yeah, with the blood so, the
1: blood tear.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, those are three very, very different roles. And this just goes to show that Mickelson is, you buy him completely in each of these roles. And it goes to show what a a world talent he is because I don't see Mickelson in any of those roles. I see Tunney. I see Tristan. I see Le Chiffre. You know, I don't, it's just remarkable to me that he embodies these roles so well.
1: Well, I think, you know, he does that one thing that we love so much about actors and that he doesn't have to do anything. And yet he still draws the camera and draws attention. Uh, all three of those films you mentioned, if he didn't say a word in those films, every time he was on screen, I still look to him first. So he just has that charisma as an actor. Uh, uh, he's got a great face. And uh, even though he doesn't do a whole lot with it, he's just got such a great face. He can do a lot with just his eyes alone.
2: Yeah, he can. Um and he the thing is, it's a testament again to him, not to keep banging his drum, but it's worth banging, is because his character is not charismatic, yet he makes it charismatic or, or alluring. Or like you said, you can't really take your eyes off his character, Tunny.
1: Yeah, Tunny might be the biggest loser in the history of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> well... He, uh... he, gets, he gets picked on by every fucking body that he talks to. I mean yeah. I, I have never seen a character more downtrodden by the people in his life. I mean, they just they just rail on this fucking guy.
2: Yeah, they do. And and you you know, it's sort of like his his curse is his blessing in that his father is the Duke, so it affords him a bit of protection, but at the same time, those are big shoes to fill and it makes him look like that much more of a fuck up. Yeah. Um but I think there's there's a lot more going on than that with this film, which we'll get to later on in terms of themes and stuff, and and how broken of a person Tunney is. And really, um, the, the thing to me that as the more I think about this film is how I think Tunney was shoehorned into this life because of a careless uh, encounter between Tunney's father and mother.
1: Yes, yes.
2: Because this clearly is not the life for someone like Tunney. Tunny is someone who's very shy. Uh, who forces himself out of that, but to do a quick character study, I mean, this just seems like he was thrust into this and he has no business being there because, uh, but through circumstance he's, he's ended up there.
1: Yeah. And you actually, and not to give anything away, but then by the time you get to the different, the end of the film, you actually see that Tunney is, is a much deeper character than, uh, than you ever anticipated.
2: Yes. Um, There's a great line early on when when Tony, in a move to try and impress his father, he um, steals a Ferrari. Sort of a, in a moment of uh, yeah. blind luck, he he steals it because his father runs a chop shop, and he brings a Ferrari back. And they mostly deal with mid-range cars or or Benzes and stuff like that. Not nothing overly flashy like uh, Ferraris. And uh, one of the one of the the workers in the garage says to Tony, "Are you collecting scars?" <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it a great little line. It gives you a great visual on what's what's in store if uh, if and when the Duke comes back.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, let's just say Tiny gets wrenches thrown at him in various garage uh, <laughs> items.
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: um, one thing that really jumped out at me was when uh, we get to see the the crew in action in terms of uh, they they're going to hold up. Uh, I can't remember if it was Beamer or if it was BMW or is They go to hold, uh, not hold up, but they go to to um, break into this dealership and steal a bunch of cars. I think it was BMWs.
1: Yeah, it was BMWs. Fan. Yeah. Um,
2: there's some music, and I thought to myself, you know what? This is the first time I've heard music in either one of these films, mm-hmm. other than other than being organically played, sort of on someone's uh, CD player or in a nightclub or something. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, well, the first film has scenes where. It has some weird musical choices. It has some scenes where, like, uh, Frank would be running and they play, like, this really weird kind of mix between cock rock and heavier metal. Uh, oh, yeah. And you'd hear bits and pieces of that in this film, too. But this film, musically, has some very interesting, and I wonder if you felt this way, too, some very interesting John Carpenter-esque type uh, cues. Very, uh, that's what I got from it. There's some cues in here that I was like, wow, somebody likes John Carpenter because it sounds like John Carpenter to me.
2: yeah. Yeah, Very. Yeah, you're right, very synth at a time when synth wasn't necessarily yeah. um, the norm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Um, the next thing, we sort of see that um, we see a girl holding a baby, smoking a joint. Yeah, nice. And <laughs> Very classy, classy stuff. And there's so many things. This is, is further crystallized by the fact that I'm a parent now. Not that I would have needed that for it to appall me, but it's just even more appalling now, and I, I look at, the situations these this baby is put in in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it just horrifying situations where they're they're railing lines of coke, they're smoking joints, the baby's in someone's arms. It's like you know, this baby's in this, this fucking snowsuit the whole movie.
1: Yeah.
2: And I just think to myself, dear God, it's almost like because what happens is this woman, um, who is basically known as the village bicycle, uh, <laughs> claims that this baby is is Tunnies. Yes. Um, and, uh, he, he comes to see that it, it, it is or believe it is. Um, and you almost see like, okay, here we go again. You know, it's, it's like Tony all over again,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? Through a life of neglect, abuse, um, substance abuse from the parents and so on and so forth. We're going to see the cycle repeat itself. And uh, like I said, it just so, so sad to see that. Uh, I thought it was awful.
1: Yeah. And I think, Tony, I think Tony, that's, he starts to see that too
2: well he does and you could see that Tony. you know th- as the film goes on you get the sense that he wants to do right by this kid but he really has no idea how to no idea whatsoever because he's such a stunted person emotionally in other ways that um he, he doesn't know how he's going to do it but you can see there's a there's a light flickering right. you know what i mean right um so i mean you know there's like the tender moment with uh a tunny where he holds this baby at a bus stop, and it's very awkward. But there's a willingness there too, and you can kind of see a bit of a light go on in his eyes that that isn't there because most times his eyes are kind of half closed and kind of weary. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and you get to see that again. as sort of a sweet moment amidst all the shit uh, when he's changing the baby's diaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's it's like uh, three Danish gangsters and a baby. You know, it, it it's it's kind of a a funny moment um but sweet moment and and which is very rare in these films to see but you can see he kind of gets a smile on his face and and again it's it's not ham-handed it's it was done very well i thought
1: yeah no it was it was handled very well um there's a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff in this film that uh it, it's obvious that Tunny is learning things uh, it's like he's reached that point in his life where things are starting to change for him, where, you know, being just a drug addict and a low-life criminal isn't good enough. And I, I feel like this film is, even though, eh, I can't give away too much without saying it, but I feel like this is the beginning of Tony's life. and he, and he And for him, it's like the beginning, even though he still has to go through hell in this film to get there. So that's this that's just how I felt. I felt like it was like you know he was traveling the other one is like a descent into hell. this one's like a a slow descent out.
2: yes, good call,
1: yeah, so that, that's what I felt like when I was watching the film,
2: and the third one's almost like it's it's sort of like um, we're content to just stay in hell where we are oh the first one is or the third one is just hell. <laughs> It's just, it's hell, but it's like we're content and resigned to the fact that it's hell, and we're here. Yeah, I can't wait we'll to get make to the most
1: that third one because uh, yeah, it, if you think they get dark, the third one just goes I just thought it was going to get lighter and lighter, and the third one just goes really dark.
2: Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, the next note I have is Milo's back, and I like that because Milo in the first one, you know, he he to me, and we'll touch on this a lot more in the third because it's one of the themes of the third one. But he's sort of this old world kind of uh, gangster kind of guy where. Very friendly, you know. It's almost like he's got his sleeves rolled up. He's cooking in the kitchen uh, while his goons are kind of standing around and, you know, wants him to try his food and this and that. And a, a firm handshake is how he does business and this and that. Um, yeah. It was nice to see him back, although he, I have to say, in the, the eight years between the two films, he's put on a few pounds.
1: Yes, yes. And then in the ninth year, when they do part three, he looks like he put on a few more.
2: <laughs> yes, he was eating too many of those Salmas or whatever they were called.
1: I think he said Smarma. What
2: or, no some, what I a, can't remember
1: what, what, I don't know what, I don't know what that stuff is. If anybody knows what that it's, stuff is, I'd be curious. I, I do know oh okay
2: it's uh, it's cabbage rolls or a variation on a cabbage roll. Oh,
1: okay, okay
2: because remember he had, the, he had the cabbage leaves and the, the meat and he was putting it in and wrapping it up and stuff.
1: I just know that I'd, I wouldn't want to eat there because at one point in part three, and we'll get to it in a minute he brings out uh, some head cheese, and I'm not a fan.
2: Yeah, my in-laws make homemade head cheese, and let me say the smell in the house when they make it—not pleasant. Oh God. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there's a scene, you know. Again, it's sort of of t- mm-hmm. what everyone thinks of Tunny when a situation happens where people need to make something happen to get out of it, and uh, Tunny proposes robbing a bank. And uh, do you think I'm giving away anything away by saying who it is that he's involved with with this? Or mm-hmm. I
1: don't. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think
2: so. Well, it's Kurt. His friend Kurt, the cunt. Um, <laughs> Kurt the cunt does something actually kind of funny, but it's it's pretty bad what he did. Um, but it's kind of humorous uh, in a moment of panic <laughs> um, that you just kind of makes sure you go, "Oh fuck, what did you do, Kurt?" But uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, Tony proposes robbing the bank, and uh, Kurt says to him, "I can't rob a bank with you. You'll fuck it up." Yeah, and. Think- Another yeah, just, another
1: character telling Tunny he'll fuck it up.
2: Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, did you find, just on a side note, that Tunny's quote unquote girlfriend looked like a, a more beat up Portia de Rossi? Yeah,
1: yeah. I found most of the girls look like either a beat up Porsche de Rossi or a midget Brigitte Bridget Nielsen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, she's a she's a Dane, isn't she?
1: Yeah, I believe she is. Actually, is.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um. Now, speaking of Bridget Nielsen and sideshows, uh, I don't know how – how can I word this? There's a wedding reception in this film and I would hope that this isn't the norm for Danes because this wedding reception features children at the reception, of course. It's at a bar. There's strippers and hot candle wax.
1: (laughs) Yes. I've actually I've actually read before um, from Reffin in an interview and stuff, though, that uh, the Danes are a lot more liberal than we are. Now, that doesn't mean that every strip club you go to, there's a bunch of kids hanging out playing Pac-Man. It just means that I think some of them just don't have a problem with that. And that's funny, that scene you mentioned, because once the candle wax comes out, that's when the kid's eyes gets covered. Not before, when this girl's shaking her ass everywhere and... Doing everything else. But when the candle wax comes out, that's the point, I guess, where it became too much.
2: Well, I guess it's OK for her brown eye to wink at him. But <laughs> the second the S&M element gets involved, that's where we got to draw the line. Yes, there you go. <laughs> but no, I guess that's true because European sensibilities, I mean, they're a lot more liberal when it comes to sex and nudity. And I don't have a problem with, with that. I mean, it's one thing if uh, a family was going to go to a nudist colony or something. But I think when there's the context, it's in the context of sex or sleaze or smut, that's when I think it shouldn't quite. Well, who am I to say? I mean, that's my Puritan North American <laughs> viewpoint, so whatever. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll move on. But I, I did find it odd as a North American oh, I'll yeah. say that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did too.
2: Um, and I just thought, again, I just wrote down what a train wreck. I mean, the child's crying, and this Porsche, beat up Porsche de Rossi is just more concerned with railing a few more lines.
1: I think everybody in this film is concerned with doing more lines. There is more coke in this movie than Canada gets snow.
2: <laughs> and that's saying something. I have
1: never seen so much coke in a movie. I mean, this, is, this blows Scarface away.
2: <laughs> yeah, except for that last scene, that oh, yeah. comedic moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but everybody, everybody, I don't care who it is. Uh you know, I bet if they would have been allowed to do it, they would have cut to that scene with that kid in the strip club and he would have done the line. Yeah. Off of her
2: ass. <laughs> exactly.
1: Because that, that her ass was that close to his face at one point.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um again the next one I have is it just goes to show how far gone Tony's relationship is with his father, and we should say that his father has since moved on and fathered uh, a child with another woman. Um, how far gone his relationship is when it seems like people are always enticing Tunny to do things by saying they'll put in a good word to the Duke for him. Yes. It's like you can really see how desperate he is to, for his father's approval um, and how people know this is how to get him to do something or how they can kind of bribe him and say, Don't worry, Tony, we'll put in a good word with the Duke for you. And, uh, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. It it really is. I mean, as much as Tony's a scumbag, you start to see him become very redeemable uh, as the film goes, well, yeah, he is, he he redeems himself a lot, but, um, it's still sad to see that, you know, he is a a product of his environment very clearly. Yes. Um, because I mean, everyone in these films are fucking scum for the most part. (laughs) And this is again,
1: I actually have that in my notes. The people in these films are mostly shit. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's like 98% shit. They're just such awful, awful people. Um, you know, there's a scene near the end when Tunny's dad is tearing him down for, for something that Tunny clearly agreed to do um, for 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 his father's acceptance and love, and uh, Tunny's dad's tearing him down about it, and it, it stung. I mean, the words he was using, I, th- I thought, fuck, this is your son, like how can you how can you talk to him like that um no. you know but anyway I, you know it's just it's really rough stuff uh really raw emotionally but last note i have is i don't want to give too much away but there's a decision near the end of the film that's made that i found very stirring very electrifying emotionally for me that um i really really love like the final shot of this film i I really, really love it, and it's one that's going to stay with me for a long time, uh, and I wish I could say more about it. I really, really do, but um, I can't for fear of spoiling it. All right, all right.
1: Yep. Yeah. all right, so I'll go over a few things I have in here. Uh, yeah, this is all, and very Oedipal, I guess is the word, uh, yeah, this is basically just a film with a, a young boy, even though Tony is older than a boy's age, but he's still needs his father and uh this is just a, a film that yeah it's really just sad and heartbreaking in a lot of ways that he just can't attach himself to his dad and his dad just as you say has moved on uh it's just it's really just emotionally just i don't even know what the right word is i mean it just really beats you down i really felt bad for tunny and i don't know if i'm supposed to feel bad for him because he's really kind of an awful person for most of the film i mean he's really just a yeah, he's, like we say, you know, he's a piece of shit. So, you know, I mean, it's weird. I mean, obviously, like I said earlier, he's getting ready to go through a change. So we see glimmers of hope in him. And, uh, of course, you know, as we said, this is that descent out of hell as possibly the the first film was the descent into hell for Frank. Uh, but still, there was times when I didn't know whether I wanted to hug Tunny or fucking punch him in the mouth. So <laughs> I was real torn. Yeah. I was real torn with his character. Off and on, Uh, yeah. I love the scenes. uh, I love the scene in the uh, the fancy penthouse apartment when Milo shows up. Uh, Milo is intimidating without even trying to be intimidating. It's it's a weird performance. Uh, He's scary in that way that uh, gangsters can sometimes be. He's very gentlemanly in a lot of ways, and uh, very charming. Yeah, and Kurt the cunt on the other hand is that (laughs) is that kind of gangster that you really just you can't stand. I mean, he wears it on his sleeve. Uh, he thinks he's somebody he's not. And I actually, for a piece, piece of trivia for you guys, uh, Kurt the Cunt is actually a real person. Is actually That is what he's actually known as in Denmark. He was actually a pimp and a drug dealer in Denmark, and his name is Kurt, and he's known on the streets as Kurt the Cunt.
2: So, so was the guy that played Kurt the Cunt the real Kurt the Cunt? I yeah. couldn't imagine. Yeah, that, that is the real Kurt the Cunt. No. <laughs> yeah,
1: That's just because uh, Refn did a lot of research for these movies, and so he hung out with a lot of uh, – Street people, gangsters, pimps, things like that. And uh, he thought that Kurt the Cunt had a lot of charisma, so he just cast him in the film.
2: <laughs> he was. Well, you know, he was really good in the film. Good in the film.
1: Yeah. No, no, he was. I, I mean, I liked him. Uh, he's a bit of a buffoon, uh, intimidating buffoon, but he's a bit of a buffoon. Uh, some interesting scenes with him uh, trying to take a crap and uh, <laughs> doing lines at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> they can't even. They can't even stop doing cocaine when they got to take a crap in this film. That's that's the kind of film this is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me go over a few other things. Um, I was really uncomfortable during the scene where Tony decides to go to the whorehouse and get a couple whores and and try to have sex, and he can't get it up.
2: <laughs> oh yes.
1: <laughs> that scene was. Uh, I don't know if the. I don't know if it made me feel sad or just terribly embarrassed. Or what, but yeah, that was that was rough. And a pretty brave performance from uh, Mickelson, who, uh, uh, let's just put it this way, he he's probably has blisters from the way he was working that thing.
2: <laughs> he was was working his pulp pretty good, just imploring his, what did he call it? He, he called him the king of the cock yeah. or something. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Messed up. But, um, yeah, I, I, most of my notes I have, you have actually as well, but I do want to say that there are some uh, – Nice moments of tension in this film build up uh, even better than in the first film. You can tell that uh, there's a couple films in between from Refn that he kind of learned how to to build tension a little bit better, uh, especially with the scene with a a hooker named uh, Jeanette. Uh, But, yeah, I can see that uh, obviously he became a better filmmaker between then and now. And I know he made a film called Bleeder, which I haven't seen, which I want to see because I think most of the people that are in the first pusher are in Bleeder. Uh, I want to see that one. And I think he made a film in America. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. I think it's called Fear X or something X. I can't remember the name, but it didn't it, do well.
2: Yeah, but it didn't. And it's, and he some interesting cast. I think it has John Turturro in it, who's a favorite of mine.
1: Yeah. I think he had a bad experience, and that's why he came back and did the second Pusher film in, uh, in Denmark. So I don't know. We'll see what happens in future installments from Reference Career. But... Uh, yeah, I'm going to agree, man. The people in these films are mostly shit. And uh, you pretty much touched on everything I was going to touch on. So I'll go ahead and kick it over to you for the uh, MVT and make or break and whatnot.
2: Okay. The make or break for me is uh, the final shot. I can't see anymore. I hate to be cryptic about it. Um, it is a very powerful moment. Um in the film for me uh, uh, and again I apologize <laughs> I know that's hindsight but that for me that's what's going to stick with me that's what really elevated the film for me um, my the film is uh, like you said we could go with Refn go with all three counts but I'm going to mix it up uh, I'm going to say Mads Mickelson because you know um, this is my first time getting to see him work well these films are my first time getting to see him work in his native tongue and uh, he can work in any language quite frankly he's, he's a world talent like I said, but. Uh, He was marvelous in this film um, with some sort of subtle little things in his performance. Just a great, great overall job by him. So he's my MVT. Uh, My score for the film is an 8.25, so it's slightly better than the last one. Um, I thought this film – I I could see this going up to an 8.5. I kind of waffled between the two numbers, but uh, that's what I settled on, an 8.25. Nice.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to go with the same thing as far as MVT goes. I have to go with Mickelson. This is really a uh, tour de force performance from him really the film centered around him and he carries the whole thing. Uh, it's really great. Uh, as Tony, it's just a great performance. Uh, My Maker break is actually going to be the scene of, uh, with him and Jeanette. Uh, I like the use of the color red in that. Um, uh, I've actually found out that reference actually colorblind. So that's interesting because he likes to use these bright colors and I guess he can't see them, but I guess he, I guess he knows that they're visceral colors, I guess. I don't know, but Oh, wow. it's it's interesting. Yeah. But, uh, I love that moment because that's the moment where Tunney makes a decision. And, of course, if anybody's listened to the show, they know that I'm a big fan of when a character has to make a decision. So I thought it was really powerful stuff. Uh, And I can see that scene you're talking about as well. I can see where that hits home, let's say. Uh, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. uh, A little bit lower than you, but I'm definitely going to give it an 8 out of 10. Uh, This film really blew me away. I mean, I liked the first one a lot, but this film... I can see why people started to love this trilogy now because this is a, an outstanding movie. There's no doubt about it, and uh, really very interesting stuff and uh, good performances. And it's, it's like all the things in the first film are completely realized in this in this uh, in this film. So I think that's what Reffin was going for, and I think he achieved it.
2: Yeah, and and I think it's a testament to Reffin's ability that the second film is better than the first. Better than the first. Yeah. How often do you see the sequels?
1: Not often. Very rarely, as a matter of fact.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yep. (laughs) All right. So that is our review of Pusher 2 with blood on my hands. We'll go to break and come back with Pusher 3, I think, which is subtitled, I am the angel of death. So I I think it's – so we shall shall be back.
4: Want to tell the world about that crappy big-budget flick or get people to buy that barely noticed book or CD that rocked your world? Can't quit talking about pop culture? Then become a blogger at one of the fastest-growing review sites online. PopSyndicate.com is searching for people who want to blog about movies, DVDs, books, comics, anime, music, TV shows, and more. Check it all out at PopSyndicate.com and email the editor for details. PopSyndicate.com, your virtual pit stop
6: for all things pop culture.
3: legend lives on from the Chippewa on down At the big lake they call Gitchagumi The lake it is said never gives up her dead When the skies of November turn gloomy With a load of iron ore 26,000 tons more Than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded for Cleveland. Then later that night when the ship's bell rang, could it be the north wind they had been feeling?
1: All right, welcome back everybody. Here we are with our third review of this show, which is something we don't normally do. But uh, this is the Trillo GG TMZ, so So... Uh, We are going to review uh, the third film in this trilogy, the Pusher trilogy, known as Pusher 3. I'm the angel of death. Uh, I guess I'll uh, – I I think you took the lead on the last review, so I think I'll take the lead on this one. So I I guess I'll kick it over to you for a plot synopsis, and then I'll start digging into it.
2: Okay. In this third installment of the Pusher trilogy, we follow Milo, the drug lord from the first two films. Uh, is aging. He's planning his daughter's 25th birthday. And his shipment of pills turns out to be 10,000 pills of ecstasy. Um, When Milo tries to sell the pills anyway, uh, all hell breaks loose and his only chance... uh, All hell breaks loose. I'll leave it at that.
1: Yeah, there we go. That's probably the best thing to do. (laughs) All right, so this is Pusher 3. Now, I'd seen Pusher 1. I liked it. I'd seen Pusher 2 and I thought, okay, so this is almost... For me, this is like the Godfather trilogy because I like Part 1, but I like Part 2 even more. Uh, part three, hopefully it's not like the Godfather trilogy, uh, but then to come to find out that I like pusher three even more than I like pusher one and two. So I was really pleasantly surprised by this because, uh, this is not typically what happens with, uh, trilogies. You would, you know, you could, I could think I can safely say that I can't think of very many trilogies where the third film is the best film of the three. So.
2: I can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah,
1: if anybody else out there can think of any, uh, I'd be curious to see, but uh it certainly isn't uh, uh maybe maybe the Indiana Jones trilogy for some people. I don't know. Maybe. That might be the only one I can think of. I know you've never seen the third one, so I don't know. But that that that's no. that, that might be the only thing. That's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Either way anyway, that's neither here nor there, like Screech and Zack and AC Slater. <laughs> so <laughs> So we'll jump into this now. The first thing you notice about this film is Milo is uh, going to be cooking for his daughter's birthday. He's uh, he's obviously he loves his daughter very much, but also he is very emasculated by his daughter. His daughter runs the fucking show. He uh, Milo had never shown any weakness in any of the films I think until this film. Uh, and for those of you not familiar or didn't listen to the first two reviews, I don't know why you wouldn't have. But uh, Milo is the drug, uh, uh, well, I guess, dealer one of the big dealers are in uh, in uh Copenhagen saying. or maybe
2: maybe supplier would be a more accurate
1: yeah yeah, yeah. you're probably right cuz he don't actually do any selling to to any street people he actually supplies the guys that do the selling so uh, so we see that he you know he goes and sees his daughter and stuff and we see very early very quickly that uh, you know the daughter runs the show uh you know he does whatever he can for his daughter like a lot of fathers do for their kids i mean he does whatever he needs to do uh, drop money here and there, does whatever, but he, he doesn't have a word to say. He, I mean, he, he literally is uh, uh, punked out by his daughter. Which you know, I'm not going to say I'm not. I don't have any kids, but I think a lot of parents end up punked out by their kids, not to this extent, but in some degree, you'll do anything you can for your kids. And obviously, Milo, it feels that way about his daughter. So, say what you want to say well, he, about him. <laughs>
2: Go ahead. Well, yeah, I know you're, you're right. That's one. Of the, I just want to interject since I have that as, as a note here. Is it's funny? It's it's somewhat funny to see that side of Milo, to see, like you said, his daughter, his little princess has him wrapped around her finger. But I think it's also there's more at work there than just that because I think it also ties into deeper themes that Refn pushes for, um no pun intended, uh such as just the guilt maybe Milo fulfills that is implied that, you know, perhaps he hasn't always had or been a conventional father. So he does a lot of these things and not just throwing money around, but he does try and be active and he's doing the cooking and stuff for her birthday that when he can, he tries to play a more active role. But I think a lot of it now that she's an adult is she is a little bit manipulative and knows that because he's been a bit neglectful, she can push those buttons and make him uh, do a lot of stuff and throw the money around a little more. So his guilt um, really drives him and drives her to.
1: Yeah. And there's a great scene where, you can she really shows that she's the boss when she asks for a cut of something. And I won't go into do too much detail about that because it's a nice little plot device, but I'll just say that she does kind of show you that she can throw her weight around. That like uh, daughter like father, you know, that type of thing, mm-hmm. like father like daughter, so so in this film you basically get, you know, there's a new regime moving in. Milo's a he's an old dog in a young dog game. And he's really beaten down. I mean it's obvious he's become addicted to some of his product. He uh, has a lot of problems. I mean, the film opens in a, uh, I guess, an NA meeting, a Narcotics Anonymous, I think, meeting. And another trivia note, that's actually shot in a real narcotics uh, meeting that Reffin and uh, the actors just showed up at <laughs>
2: and just stuck Milo oh, wow. in there.
1: <laughs> so that's why it seems kind of realistic because they just stuck him in there.
2: <laughs> I do want to say this. That That's an interesting piece of trivia. I thought that because before you see um, the character – I had thought it was going to be another character in that uh, meeting. Did you think that?
1: Yes. Yes. I didn't yes. That. And I, that's, all, that's all I'll say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, so you know, he's, he's an old dog in a young dog's game, but he's trying to move on with his life. Again, these are, I think, except for the first film, but I think in some ways Frank was trying to move on with his life too. He just didn't know how to do it. But I think that these people are all tired of the lives that they've chosen and they want to move on. Uh, At least that's what I thought. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit further. But, I mean, that's the way I feel. And, you know, these these films, again, are still about the spiral. I mean, things in this film get out of control for Milo. And I mean fucking out of control. Uh, And it really starts to hit him on his pride and, uh, you know, starts to hurt his reputation, which is a big deal when you're a drug supplier or a gangster on the street. You know, once your rep is harmed, you're really, it's really hard to, Kind of come back from that, so you know that really every time somebody starts getting on somebody's reputation, you know the pride kicks in, and then some bad things might happen. So, uh, I, I want to say you get to see Muhammad again. Now, Muhammad sold the gun, sold a gun to Tunny in uh, part two, and these are the nice little touches I think that Refn does, maybe better than any director I've ever seen, where he has these little uh, background characters, these little ancillary characters that are in the background. Uh, Yet they come up in the next film and they're a more major deal. Again, you get Mike in this film who's uh, uh, his daughter's, Melina's uh, boyfriend or future fiance. And he was the one that was selling dope and trying to sell the gun the bodybuilder in the first pusher. Yeah, that was Mike. Yes. So, I mean, you get these little touches like that. And it's really amazing to me and so smart that uh, Refn does it this way because it really rewards the viewer of the films. You know what I mean?
2: It really does. And I'm glad my wife pointed this out because like I said, I'm a little bit, I wasn't very sharp watching these because I was on the couch and kind of woe is me. And she goes, hey, that's the guy that sold the gun on the second one. And, you know, you kept seeing it and she picked up all of the references. And I'm glad she did because like you said, Refin does it so well. And it's so rewarding because you can see um, this just sort of this community. Uh, and you also see sort of Muhammad's move up the ranks.
1: Yes, and what you also – what the, really the amazing thing about that, and, and you telling me that your wife noticed it, the amazing thing about that when you think about it, the only time that ever works is if Brad Pitt is playing that character or if uh, Clive Owen is playing that character because then we identify the actor, right? In these films, mm-hmm. you get a lot of actors that we don't know, and yet you still remember the characters. Even if they're only in another film for five minutes, you still remember them come the third film. Now, that's pretty amazing.
2: And you're right, because Muhammad's only in the second one for maybe five minutes.
1: Tops, yeah. And he even in this film, yeah. he even tries to sell Milo the gold chain that Tony
2: tried to sell him. <laughs> yes, which my wife also pointed out.
1: <laughs> so I thought it was a really nice touch, really uh, really good stuff. And uh, uh, just bravo to Refn. Uh This guy's quickly becoming uh, one of my favorite directors working out there right now. Uh, mm-hmm. we, get, uh, we get the reappearance of the cunt. Uh, I never, I never thought I'd get to say that on a podcast, but yes, we get a reappearance of the cunt, <laughs> and this time the uh, the cunt has hair, and he manages to say that. And there's quite a few jokes, and the cunt has really bad hair too, by the way.
2: He does, and the cunt should have kept himself bald. Yes, the cunt should have stayed bald. <laughs> yes, there we go.
1: Yes, he should have stayed prepubescent cunt because uh, he's not he's not looking good there with the. Kind of weird, kind of strange-looking fro that kind of it's, grows in like three different ways.
2: Oh yeah, what it is? It's almost like our Garfunkel hair. He's a little bit on the top, but like poofy on the sides. Yeah, yeah. Garfunkel fro, man.
1: But but the, the interesting thing about the uh, well, the interesting thing about cunt. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird to say that. <laughs> the interesting thing about Kurt the cunt, I should say. Is that in this film, he's kind of – when they say the angel of death, I don't know if they're speaking of Milo or they're speaking of cunt because it's just weird to say that. (laughs) Every time I say it, I just want to start laughing. (laughs) (laughs) That uh, He's kind of the harbinger of doom really because really the film takes a turn once Kurt shows up. I'll just say Kurt from now on. (laughs) Or,
2: or is it that the drug is the angel of death? The drugs well, in general are That's the angel what I'm saying. I
1: mean, Kurt comes out of nowhere, shows up again, and you're laughing, you're joking around with Kurt, you know, about his hair jokes and blah, blah, blah. And then <laughs> Kurt kind of drops the uh, the drug, which, you know, Milo, from this point, Milo has, has stayed off of drugs, but he's getting stressed out. You know, he's got to cook for 50 or 100 people. He's He's got to do all this. His daughter's got him stressed, uh, you know. He's had some issues. He he doesn't know how to sell ecstasy uh, because it's a new drug. He doesn't know anything about new drugs. He just knows about you know brown heroin, white heroin. That's pretty much his thing and coke. He doesn't know what ecstasy is, things like that. I, I'm just saying this stuff kind of blunt blandly because I don't want to give away too much about the plot. But you know he does, he he ends up in this situation and the, all this stress just kind of it capitalizes itself and it becomes something. And then uh, Kurt you know comes out of nowhere like it like a you know like an angel of death really like a uh, grim reaper and pushes milo to that point where he needs to be for him okay so not saying that people need to be where milo goes cuz where milo goes is incredibly dark but it it kind of takes him over the edge and so i always thought that you know uh, <laughs> As with most men the the cunt is destructive in uh <laughs> in this film, so maybe maybe Refin was making a point there by making the cunt the uh destructive force <laughs> as we have all done some crazy things for the cunt
2: all right
0: <laughs>
1: all right um. I like that uh, they, they would go moments in this film with no sound or nothing. It would just get quiet as if to uh, build up anxiety and uh, and angst and anger and tension. I really like that uh, they decided to drop the sound completely. And again, he uses slow motion, I think, in this film, too, in weird spots. Reffens uh, Refn's definitely a student of the slow motion, but he either maybe it's because he's Denmark or something, but he uses it in odd ways. And I, I kind of like the way he uses it. It's a nice touch because we're so used to seeing it in a gun battle or, you know, a moment of violence. Uh, his moments of slow motion tend to be uh, moments of, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is, uh, I don't know, moments of where he's being introspective or Milo's being introspective or just smoking a cigarette something like that making some, you know, decisions. So I like mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah, I just want to say this this film just keeps getting darker and darker, and uh, I, I can't give away the back third of this film, but let's just say that the back, unlike uh, the first film where the back third is kind of the weakest point, uh, this film, the back third, might be the most powerful point. It really goes yeah. somewhere that I didn't expect, and I'm pretty positive that you didn't expect it either. Uh, no. We get, a reappear- we get a reappearance of Radovan from the first film, who is Milo's old uh, muscle. Uh, he shows back up uh, and it took me a minute to realize it was him actually but uh it was very odd and he just uh, kind of shows back up and uh once he does it gets uh it gets much more interesting let's just say it that way and i'm trying to i'm you know kind of over the precipice precipice here of uh trying to uh, say what i want to say without giving away the film because i don't want to give away the back third of this film because it's it's such a punch to the gut, and I think people are really going to enjoy it. And I think they, they have no idea what they're in for. And even when everything starts to happen, you still think it's not going to happen. At least you're not going to see what's going to happen. And you would be wrong because you're going to see everything that happens. So I want to say that. And I, I pretty much – that's really all the notes I have because I really love this film. I love the study of Milo – I've always loved the study of in films of the downtrodden older characters who've been beaten by life, who've made some bad choices and are trying to get out of it. But I mean, it's just it's really great. It, it it's just a great character study of a of a character that you know is very evil in the first two movies, uh, especially the first movie. Maybe not so much in the second movie. Kind of a jokester, but still very evil in the second movie. Uh, this film, you get the feeling that he's not so evil for about forty-five to fifty minutes, and then things. Changed tremendously. So that's all I want to say about Pusher 3. I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to you and let you go over your notes.
2: All right. Uh, The first note I have... um, Can you hear me okay?
1: Yes, I can hear you just fine.
2: Sorry, everyone. We're having technical difficulties although you may edit that out. The first thing that I... I, Well, not the first thing but as this movie started playing itself out, um, what Milo reminded me of the most in this was the Tommy Lee Jones character in No Country for Old Men.
1: Oh, uh, yeah.
2: In a sort of a skewed, bizarro world way. Um, <clears throat> basically, he, again, as I referenced in the second uh, episode, or the second uh, part of the, the trilogy, he, to me, is is from, you know, he, you see a lot. They they do the close-up of a handshake. That's how you do business, with a firm hand. Your word is what's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't break your word for anything. So when you see Milo struggling to keep up with these times and these young Turks, no pun intended, because I think <laughs> uh, Muhammad is Turkish. Um, yeah. You know these young Turks coming in to kind of to, to grasp the crown from him and, and everything else. You know him kind of questioning uh, what this this new generation is all about and and just everything that that they are and they stand for. It just seems. You know, he he can't understand it and he seems like an old man. His his age and the rust on the – the rust is really set in on him. So that's the thing that, that's, that I found uh, very interesting. Like you said, I like seeing these downtrodden characters as well that uh, are, are put into these situations and kind of have to – to show they have a bit of bite left. Um, well, you know, I mean
1: desperation uh, does so much for storytelling, right? And when you put somebody in desperate situations – It's so easy to get an audience sucked in. And uh, once Milo gets into a desperate moment, or moments in this film, the film really kind of grabs a hold of you then, and it doesn't let go. And the smart thing that Refn does is he really gives you that payoff. You know, I mean, I've I've seen interviews with Tom Savini, and he always talks about that scene in uh, Zombie 2 where Fulci's pushing the eye toward the splinter. And most filmmakers would pull away, but, you know, sometimes you need that payoff. You need that... uh, you need that moment to satisfy that inner whatever it is in you and stuff. And I think that Reffin is smart and that he – in all three of these films, he manages some way to make you feel the payoff.
2: Yes. Yes. This is – it's a visceral kind of payoff. The second one's an emotional payoff to a degree. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that you get the payoffs with him. Um, you know, a, a comical thing I had when you're talking about him – struggling with this new generation as he's talking about the E and one, I think one of his henchmen says to him about getting a haircut and he's like why don't you get your hair get a Beckham haircut and sell E that would be cool <laughs>
0: yes.
2: and Milos like this like mid-50s or you know maybe early 50s late 40s uh, Serbian or Yugoslavian man with you know bald on top and a little bit of hair on the sides and back so it just a very sort of humorous moment yeah. it's something you can picture someone saying to like their dad like why don't you get your hair cut like Beckham or <laughs> sort of ribbing them good naturedly, um, so I thought that was kind of funny. And I also like that they bring back the running joke throughout about Milo's cooking.
1: Yes, Milo's cooking never, even though in this film evidently it's a little bit better because you know he cooks for all these people and everybody's eating it and stuff. But still, nobody wants to touch his cooking, and uh, the reason why is because he uh, inadvertently uh, <laughs> poisons a couple of his goons. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Matter of fact, one guy even uh, shits his pants in the van next to him. I'm not giving anything away by saying that, but it's a classic moment.
2: <laughs> it is, and he's again, he just keeps hammering him to open the gate, and the guy's so lost and shitting his pants that he forgets. It is a funny moment, and that's the thing. There are some funny moments peppered throughout the films, and especially in this one, some sort of black sort of comedic moments or just subtle comedic moments. Like uh, what happens is, well, I can't remember the circumstance now, but he goes into a Chinese restaurant where he runs into the cunt, and, uh, and then he orders sixty fried fish, and the the, uh, the Chinese man who runs the Chinese restaurant says to him, "Is that for here to go?" And Milo gives him this look, like, "You idiot! Do you honestly think I'm going to sit down and eat sixty fried fish?" <laughs> and uh, yeah, just that look Milo gives him, and that the, the the guy says it with a straight face to him. I, I don't know, I just got a chuckle out of that. I thought it was kind of funny.
1: <laughs> it was funny.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that that actually that ties in with something uh, very important a decision Milo makes because this fish is taking a while taking a while and then he says the the guy you know how much long he says oh wait a minute and that is what leads into something uh, very important the film um, you know and the thing is you really care about Milo Milo's quest to stay sober because you know you see a bit of his humanity and you know we as a as a culture. We want to see people. We're all about people redeeming themselves and giving people second chances. And right. you see that glimmer of humanity within Milo with his daughter. Um, you want to see him succeed and, and go sort of the the way of uh, you know being clean and sober. Mm-hmm. Right. So you do care about his his battle with sobriety a little bit. Um, now, speaking yeah. of his daughter, there, there to me is a was a very poignant, uh, tender, powerful, emotional scene where Milo is speaking. He has a speech at his daughter, this party for his daughter, where he talks about his daughter and how much he loves her and everything. And I thought it was a wonderful moment, very well acted and very well written, and and emotionally uh, really hit the spot for me. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, there are some great moments. You know what's funny? I'm sitting there thinking about this now. I mean, in the first, second film, we were talking about how there's snow everywhere, right? I mean, there's drugs everywhere. In this film, drugs are prominent but not seen as often. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's really a weird touch uh, that he kind of went away from showing the drugs as much. And maybe that's because you know, Milo's an older character and you know he does his drugs differently. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I thought we'd see more scenes of more people abusing drugs because that seems to be what the Pusher trilogy is about. But this one seems to be more about the abuse the drugs have already done. You don't need to see it anymore. This, one's, this one seems to be more about this is the damage that you know all of, this, all of these decisions has wrought upon these people. Uh, so I found that kind of interesting that he went away from the, the abundant amount of drugs. I mean, there's drugs in the film. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like the blizzard that's in part two. And trust me, if you see part two, you know what I mean?
2: (laughs) No, you're right. And this, just the way that, um, Milo's a lot more discreet about his, his habits too. And everything. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. Yes.
2: You know, he's not as blatant as the, the characters in the second one. Um, now, this one, we kind of see things also come full circle for Milo. Um, I don't think that's giving too much away. No. Because we said he does get himself into a desperate situation. It's funny to see that come full circle from the first one where he was on the other end. Yes. And uh, now, you know, he's he's got to have some answers quick mm-hmm. for some things. So I thought that was very interesting they decided to do that. I think it's um, always
1: was. I think that's the one thing that I found so interesting when I say the spiraling downwards. I think that... It's interesting how fragile these people's lives are. <laughs> one yep. mistake can just ruin everything. I mean, they they have to be almost perfect with everything they do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All it takes is, yeah, is one mistake and the the house of cards comes down.
1: Yes, quickly.
2: Yeah. Um, there's some, some human trafficking in this film and I thought it was pretty harsh. Uh, oh, man. Just the thought of it, of course. It is harsh, but this was really harsh. This this girl is brought in and... Um, it it was it was pretty rough to watch. I mean, it wasn't anything that was done necessarily to her, but just the idea of it. And you can see she's a little bit young, and I mean, she's not so young. I mean, she's not a child, but she's she's a teenage girl, <clears throat> and uh, you can see her kind of trembling. And this guy's got her passport, and you just think to yourself, "Fuck!" You know, you think, "Wow, this stuff goes on." I mean, this is just horrible.
1: Another um, thing about that scene that's interesting is Mito <clears throat> makes not just one decision in that scene, but he makes two. Because there's a moment where you know he seems like he's helping them, but you know then things might then things change so it was an interesting touch I don't know if he was out if he was out for himself in that regard or who he was trying to help I don't know I mean I don't want to go into too much detail about it obviously because it kind of might we might get into the territory of spool in the back third, but I don't know if you know what I'm talking about there seems to be like two different melos in that in that segment.
2: Yeah, no, I think I know the senior. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I will say this. We do find out that the girl um, the girl is trying to be sold. I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying this. Nope. Um, the person, the prospective buyer says she's not old enough, and the girl turns out it's her 18th birthday that day. Uh, Milo, because he, it was his first birthday, uh, and what I found was a very poignant, sweet moment and a sweet gesture by Milo, he has a piece of birthday cake that he brings out and puts a candle in for the girl to give to her, almost like this this little slice of humanity um, amidst this uh, relentlessly awful um, tide that's rise over this girl's head.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, he's very confused in those moments and his performances, too. It's very, very ingenious. I think the lady that's actually thinking about purchasing the girl actually is Jeanette from the second film. Yes, it is. Again, another little touch. I I think you might want to take that out, though. Uh, No? Yeah, yeah, I might want to, actually. Damn the editing. (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, so, okay, so I'll move on. We get to see some old red paint, our last 70s genre films, which is good. I won't say much more than that. Are you there?
1: Oh, yeah, 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 I'm here. I'm, I'm okay. laughing about the red paint because <laughs> oh. that was some seriously red paint.
2: <laughs> it was red paint. Even my wife said that. Um, no, there's a scene where someone gets a bag over their head, and that always makes me kind of feel a little bit short of breath
1: yeah that that actually really well done it's very uncomfortable
2: very very comfortable um like you said i i you said I, I'm on the precipice here I don't here I don't spoil the back third of this film because it's very powerful and just keeps getting more awful and awful and more hopelessly messy for everyone involved. It's just an awful fucking situation um you think if we don't say who, but we kind of... No, I don't even know if I want to go there. No,
1: I think we should just say that just basically anything that has to do with the back third of this film, even if you don't want to watch the other two pusher films, I think watching this film is very important because I think the payoff in this one is so tremendous and visceral that I think anybody's going to enjoy this film. You don't even have to watch the whole trilogy to enjoy this film. And really, that's the genius of this trilogy in, in general. I mean, it, it adds to it. If you want to watch all three films, it's very rewarding. Like we've talked about, but I think you can watch any one of these films as a standalone and they stand
2: on their own. That is the beauty of it. And the genius of it is yes. Anyone is good on their own. Uh, but any, any one of them is enriched by having seen the other ones in succession. Yes. Because of the little, the little treat sort treat things that they reveal in terms of characters reoccurring and the revolving door of them. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, there's some really unsavory things done that I think um, any genre fan will will respect and admire a great deal. I won't say much more than that. Yes. <laughs> it's it's handled very very well. Um, one, a few notes I want to just overall all I want to say um, before I get off this is um, other than the a crooked cop. In the third part, and the cops in the first part, there really aren't any police in this. It's mostly leaving the criminals to police themselves. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that, which I thought was was interesting that they they decided to go that route. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this this is almost like uh, like you know Guy Ritchie's films in ex, with, minus the the slickness, not the skill, but the slickness and sort of the comedic edge. You know, the, the very criminal. Europe It's interesting to sort of. Look at something like he did with his I guess trilogy,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and then look at this and compare and contrast how gritty and uh, different they are,
1: yeah, Gar Ritchie's stuff is more uh, <clears throat> comic book more cartoony uh mm-hmm. not that that's a bad thing. I enjoy that we've talked about Gar Ritchie quite often. I enjoy the fact that you know he does his as you say one trick very well uh you know I don't know if he can do it for the rest of his career, but you know I've had a lot of fun with his films uh Refn, it's obvious to me that he's going to be able to move into different stuff because he handles things a lot differently and stuff and maybe not as stylish but at the same time uh you got to remember he wrote the second and the third film uh, and that's very impressive too because i think that these films are so deep i don't know where he picked up this material uh you know i don't know if all of his research with these drug lords and people on the streets and things i don't know if this you know, all comes from that, or if he, you know, a lot of it comes from American cinema. I don't know, but obviously, you know, Refn's a, a deeper filmmaker than Richie. I mean, we can definitely say that, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it, he is, and this is a filmmaker that, unless no discredit to Richie, because like you said, I like Richie too, but, but uh, Reffin has a lot more going on. I think he, you know, well, look, he did Bronson, which we're both very excited about. He's going to do that uh, Viking film, with Mads Mickelson, which I'm also chomping at the bit to see, and, uh, you know, Or even something like if you look at Fernando de Leo's Milieu trilogy, uh, again, sort of um, comparing it to this. I think it's interesting to compare between European or or crime trilogies to the trilogy. What saying and what they're trying to say, I, I think it's very interesting um, when you look at that. But, uh, yeah, just overall, uh, just, I was very, very impressed with uh, all three films and how each film got success- better in succession, which like you said, is a very rare feat. Um I don't really have any other notes about the film because, like I said, I don't want to sell the back third of the film. Yes.
1: Yes. Totally understandable. All right. So I'll just kind of go over my make or break. Uh, My make or break for this film is the entire back third of this film. Uh, I cannot say enough about it. I just, I I did not expect it to go where it went. And it was just so satisfying. That's all I'm going (laughs) to say. My MVT for this film. Again, this, this, this uh, it was Reffin in the first film. It was Mickelson in the second film. And I'm going to go with Zlatko Burek in this film, who plays Milo. I think I said Zlatko Burek. I think I said that right. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think he does a great performance in this. There's moments of quiet where he's just kind of being introspective that are just genius. Uh, some of the scenes with him at the, uh, the Narcotics Anonymous meetings are both heartbreaking, comedic, and poignant all at once uh so i really i really enjoyed his performance in this film and that's not to take away from reffin these last two films are more powerful than the first film it's just the performances that he manages to get out of these guys are are just amazing and uh i think he uh he did a great job in this one with the guy that plays milo uh my score for this film is an 8.25 i think this is uh that rare occasion and maybe the rarest of occasions where the third film is better than the first one. I, I guess you could argue this with uh, maybe the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly trilogy, or, you know, the, the Dollars trilogy, I should say. Some people like Good, Bad, and the Ugly more than they do any of the other two. But, you know, it's very rare for a trilogy to get progressively better. We know this happens very rarely. Uh, so, But this is one of those rare moments where you just keep getting – I mean, just from the beginning to the end. I, I said the other day on Twitter that – Pusher 1 is like an appetizer. Pusher 2 is like the main course. And Pusher 3 is that really sweet dessert treat that you can't wait for after you get done with the dinner. And I think that's the best way to describe it for me. So,
2: 8.25. I also wanted to say my major break was the back there of the film. Again, when we're talking about that, for fear of it not you like it should um but i also did really like that scene with with milo's speech about his daughter and his love for her i thought that was really well done so it's funny because those two i've just mentioned or those two things are very uh opposed to each other uh, in every way shape and form (laughs) if they're both handled equally well um my mvd like you said is our good friend milo um wonderful performance he was someone that i really liked throughout the trilogy i liked him in the first one. you know, very charismatic. Uh, I liked his appearance in the second one and I was really excited to see him in this one. Great job by him. Uh, and, uh, as I think has been the case with each film, I'm going to give it just a little bit higher score. I'm going to give it an 8.5. But, um, what initially drawn, me, uh, this trilogy was on Twitch. I think it was Todd had said that he felt that overall this trilogy was better than the Godfather trilogy. Um, And I thought, well, listen, you know, I love Twitch and I take what they say seriously over there. So it kind of made me pause and take notice. So um, I would say that if I had to, uh, before I get into my, my, uh, or before I get off this, um, because that's what I kept thinking about was how it was going to uh, hold up to Godfather. To me, the first two Godfathers, I kind of look at as a 10 uh, and then the third one maybe is six. I think it's unfor- unfairly criticized. It's an okay film, but in the shadow of it's in the shadow of giants, so it, yes. it looks a lot worse than it is. Yes. I don't know. If, I don't know if you feel that way to a degree.
1: Uh, I do. I mean, it's it's the third one's flawed. Let's be honest, it's flawed. Yeah, uh, but oh, it is. Like a lot of Coppola's later stuff, a lot of his later stuff is flawed, uh, but still very competent because that's. I mean, you got a, a great filmmaker. Who you know might have blown his load in the seventies, but it doesn't mean that his films aren't competent still. And I felt, I felt like The Godfather Three was competent. Just some bad acting choices is really the the big hurt of that film is just some bad casting.
2: Yes, but it's still a decent film.
1: Yes, no, it's still uh, you know I've still seen it more than once, so it's not mm, like yeah. it's awful.
2: So I mean, it's like a six for me, maybe.
1: Yeah, I'd say yeah, about a six.
2: In there, so I mean, you you add up those three numbers, it's a twenty six. Whereas you add up my three numbers for this, and it's what a twenty four point seven five. So you can see, top to bottom, this trilogy is not that far off the Godfather trilogy. So I think that really is a testament to uh, to Reffin and this body of work he's put out about uh, low to mid level criminals in uh, in Denmark.
1: Yes, yes, it's genius work, and uh, I'm really glad we covered this trilogy, and I hope everybody checks it out. Absolutely. All right, so that is our review of the Pusher Trilogy. We're going to go to break and come back with some feedback, so we shall return.
4: Ah, you kids today with your internet porn, discussion forums, and illegal movie torrents. At Cinemadiabolica.com, we've got something way better than all that. We've got overly opinionated, offensive commentary on films that we more than likely didn't pay for. I guess you could say it's like the entire internet all on one site. Except not. Yo, son, com is like the whole internet on one
1: site. Except not. Holla.
4: Cinemadiabolica.com
1: All right, we are back, and we are going to knock out some feedback. Got a couple emails, a couple voicemails. So I'll go ahead and kick it over to you, Large William, for
2: the emails. All right, uh, the first one wasn't really for the air, but I did want to acknowledge it. It was a very kind uh, email that... Uh, the lightning bug, who can be found at thelightningbugslayer.com, dot uh, com, sent us. Uh, it was to Big Willie and the Eye. <laughs> the Rickeray. <laughs> uh, he had some really <laughs> he had some really kind words to say for us, and I want to thank him for that. Um, it really meant a lot. And he did say that he liked our Get Carter review, and uh, he thought we were we were pretty accurate about Meyer. Uh, much like, in his opinion, Jess Franco, who gets un categorized or categorized unfairly, as just a purveyor of smut. Yes. So um, I did acknowledge that, although he did say, you know, you don't say, you know, so thank you for the uh, kind words lightning bug. And um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Mm -hmm. Um, The next one is one from Brian. And let me see here. Uh, Hang on a second. You know, Sam, you have to edit this out. At the bottom of his email, there's an MP3. It's like four thousand.
1: Oh, don't worry. It's the Get Carter theme. You might want to download that at some point in time. It's the theme to oh, Get Carter. No, no. He sent that to us. Okay. That's I nice you of I that Actually I actually downloaded it. It's on my laptop now. It's, it's sweet. So I'm going to download it. You, see, don't, you don't have to edit this out or anything. I just want to say uh, thanks for sending me that because I was looking for that theme. I couldn't find it anywhere, so I appreciate that, Brian, really.
2: Okay. Well, yes, thank you very, very much, Brian. And my computer's been running slow with a bit of ice. We're getting up here this time of year, which I thought we were in the clear, but we're not – uh, such as Canada. Well, it's only. Um, it's, it, it, of...
1: to, to be fair, it's only uh, about thirty-eight degrees in Kentucky today, so it's oh.
2: cold everywhere. I think. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so the title for this email is "You Can't Cane the Cane." <laughs> Boyos, just quickie. Love to get. It's always been up there in my top Michael Caine films. Just in case you haven't tracked it down yet, ah, uh, and I had read this too. Did uh, j- read it down yet yourselves? Here's the theme good gear i got it from a great little compilation which includes all the greats bullet dirty Harry, starsky and hutch along with some fan dabby dozy tracks from old brit police shows like the professionals and the sweeney nice living in america now it amazes me even watching bbc america that there's a need for subtitles first time i saw trains spotting on cable in the states i was shocked with the sight of subtitles but now i have had to slow down my own speech and leave out half my words to get a conversation with my wife without repeating myself over and over and yes, when someone dies from not uh, dies back home, they're brought to the house for the wake.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Also, there you go. That's good to know. Uh, also, a thought for a future listener content episode, maybe phone in best impressions of actors. <laughs> 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 Just a thought. Oh, well, off I trot. Touch up Brian. So thank you very much for that, Brian, and thanks for clearing up that uh, cultural uh, query we had about uh, the wakes.
1: Yes. Yes, uh... Yeah, thank you very much for the Get Carter theme. Uh, very appreciative. I've been listening to that quite a bit on the old iPod. And, uh, yeah, I love that theme, so it's really great. Uh, yeah, I mean, having listeners call in doing impressions, that's kind of tricky because I've got a feeling I'll get a lot of Christopher Walkins, who seems to be, all of a sudden, when only Jay Moir used to do a, a great Christopher Walken, and maybe Kevin Spacey, it seems to me like everybody does Christopher Walken now.
2: But I'm not opposed to people calling in weekly and doing their best Macho Man impression for us. Yes,
1: Macho Man, or their Hulk Hogan, or even their uh, uh, Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. Ooh,
2: that would be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect synthesis of cocaine and steroids. Yes.
1: And uh, motivational speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I don't. I don't yes. know his uh, interviews in wrestling. I know we're way off topic here, but his interviews were the weirdest mixture of bombast and motivational speaking. It's like Tony Robbins as a wrestler.
2: Yeah, on acid. Yes. Meets Charles Manson.
1: With the hardest nipples I've ever seen. Tough tits, Ultimate Warrior, way to go.
2: Oh, tough tits and teased hair. <laughs> That's, see, there's the 80s show, Tough tits and teased hair. Nice. That's John Michael Thor. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> we got way off track, but I uh, think... <laughs> what was I even going to say now about this? Fuck me. <laughs> um... Uh. Thank you for the email, Brian. I'll leave it at that.
1: Yes, Brian. Thanks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the review from uh, Fran Jellick or Fran, I guess, as she wants to be called. Um, I'm going to have to edit this on a fly. So bear with me. Uh, hello, gentlemen. My name is Fran. You might know me as Fran Angelic on both the pop syndicate forums and Twitter. I've listened to every episode of your show so far and have to say I love it. I've been relatively quiet until now. Well, except for rousing y'all on Twitter.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I felt I absolutely had to speak. As I was at Horror Hound Weekend in Indy last weekend, I happened upon a little movie you all covered called *Martyrs*, and it rocked my world in unimaginable ways. I'm still processing it a week later, and don't see that ending. And don't see that ending anytime soon. I've never in my life seen anything so beautiful yet grotesque in the same instance. Um, I came into this movie with warnings from people who read a lot of forums. This movie would be hard to watch, and it certainly was. But every time I thought I could stand no more, something happened which glued me to my seat. The pain was always tempered by this deep compassion. No matter how brutal things become, um, the more I think about this movie, the more I find it beyond classification. There are definitely horrific scenes, but I would not call it horror. I think this movie needs a new genre, but then I don't think there will ever be another quite like it. As I talked to people after the movie, I noticed that some people were not truly as moved as I was. I think this shows a desensitization and a lack of compassion in society. I think to truly get this movie, you have to be able to really feel for other people. The attachment from the characters causes a person to lose all understanding. I hope this wasn't too wordy or redundant, and I'm excited to hear if you have anything to add to my thoughts. Fran.
1: Well, Fran, I I can tell you that this is, again, the payoff that I think Martyrs gives is that some people are deeply moved by it. Some people are not moved at all. I mean really that's the the kind of consensus of the film but i think that everybody can pretty much agree that even if you aren't moved emotionally um uh, you're still at you know you're still admiring the filmmaking i think that we all can agree on that i haven't heard anybody really say anything bad about the filmmaking yet now, i have heard people say oh it's it's this oh it's that uh give it the torture porn label blah 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 but i've never heard anybody yet say oh it's not it's not well made." you know, and nobody said that yet. So I think that we can all agree at least on one aspect that, uh, the film is very, very well made.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, to hear us further expound on it, like you said, um, I think everything we kind of had to say about it, um, we said in our review, but I agree with you. I think some people are going to be emotionally moved by it like we were and, and some aren't, but I think as Sammy said, we can all marvel at its technical ability and how it really brought, uh, really brought it and uh, and up the ante with genre filmmaking. And I do want to say as an aside that um, I, I always find it encouraging when we get more female listeners because quite honestly, Sammy, I think uh, horror is something that a lot of women like, but I think a lot of the films we cover tend to cater more towards men. So I really love that we have a good, solid uh, core of female listeners. It means a lot to me because uh, you know I almost feel sometimes like this is a bit of a treehouse that uh, we're in <laughs> and we don't try and make it be, I mean, we try and make it inclusive, but yeah, inevitably when we talk about tough tits and headbands and teased hair and and all this it can become a bit uh a bit of a, a treehouse
1: yeah it's a bit of a treehouse full of sausage and <laughs> uh yeah unfortunately I, I feel that way sometimes too and we try to cover films i think that uh are more universal but i've always thought that too about our the title of our show the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema i always thought you know well that kind of just says that you know we're Maybe for some people that might mean that we cover just films for guys, but that's not the case. We do love the action movies and stuff. I do feel like females, if they give them a shot, I do feel like they can get a lot out of them because a lot of the action movies we cover are very hokey. But, um, yeah, it it encourages me when we get female uh, responses and uh, a lot of uh, admiration from some of our female listeners because uh, that means a lot to us. Uh, It really does. Uh, That's why we're doing the Ladies Appreciation Month next month, so. Hopefully, everybody will tune in for that. It will be a lot of fun.
2: It really will be. And I do want to say that just the, the name Gentleman's Guide, to me, it came from just sort of this love of sort of those 50s Gentleman's Guide to etiquette type things. And that's yep. really where it came from. It wasn't meant to be exclusive to men or boys only in the treehouse, yes. just to give you all a bit of understanding. Um, you know, We all can appreciate splatter and sleaze, uh, whether you're a boy or a girl. or both or whatever doesn't matter
1: and i think we're finding that a lot more females out there enjoy these cheesy action movies than we thought so that's another good thing that's a really good thing and just wait until we get to the the awesomeness that is malibu one day oh yeah (laughs) hey pig breath hey pig breath (laughs) (laughs) all right so we got a couple of uh voicemails here so i'll go ahead and play those
6: Hey, gentlemen, it's Vishnu. Um, I think I am a bit late in sending this, so I don't know if it will be a show behind. I just wanted to talk about Get Carter. Um, I, I kind of really did the film. I haven't seen it for a while, so maybe it is clunky and slow. I haven't seen it for a while. Like I said, but I do remember it being that very cool and tough and being very upset when I saw the Stallone remake. It just didn't resonate right with me. Um, One thing I was going to say is because Michael Caine is such a badass in this movie, a really sort of nice counterpart to this film is um, another one of his from the seventies called Iqris Files, which is he, he's very cool, but he's not the tough, tough badass in this one. He's he's almost like the the opposite side of a coin. He's very much um the refined. He plays classical music and he cooks and stuff, but he still bones everyone in sight and manages to get the bad guys. And all um, lots of really cool camera angles in that too. Um, I must say, I really did get a good chuckle out of the idea of Sammy walking around Kentucky telling him when to get stuffed, that please, <laughs> please do and take that somehow first. Um, oh, and a tiny, tiny little note, the little woolly thing on top of a teapot, it's called a tea cozy. Um, that was it, really. Bye.
1: All right, there's our good pal Vish.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do want to say to Vish, I'm really, really sorry, Vish. Vish had sent me a text to see if I was going to join Master 2 Master to on Sunday. And uh, I was so, so, so sick in bed that I just was not able to. So um, I apologize that I didn't get back to you, man, but I've been bedridden with the flu.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, what do you say about somebody in Kentucky saying, get stuffed? Uh.
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) I think you need to. And I think you can, well, you, on your iPod, you can listen to the Get Carter theme and punch people and say, get stuffed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and a tea cozy. I do know what a tea cozy is. I just never. We just don't see them down here. Uh, now thinking about it, I think I might have seen them a couple of times, but it's just not that often, you know, because like I say, we mostly serve our tea hot, uh, cold down here, so we see to see, you know, pitchers with sweat on them. Uh, <laughs> we don't see, you know, these nice, warm, pretty teapots. You know, we see these this pitcher with ice in it, and just it's sweating the whole time. You have to have paper towels on the table because there's just <laughs> so much moisture coming off of these cold containers of tea. So Yeah. <laughs> that's just the way it is in the humid south. Uh, by the way, that Michael Caine film—I haven't seen that, and I do want to see that. So, maybe on a future episode.
2: I'd be down for that because same here. I haven't seen and wanted to. Nice. All right, so we got another voicemail here
1: from uh, Emily, I believe. So,
5: hi, gentlemen. It's Emily, and I'm calling with a minor complaint. I don't. I hope it's not your fault. Oh. But I've now since rented two films via Netflix from your recommendations, and both of them have skipped in really bad spots. Um, so Shotgun Story is a great film um, It really would have been nice if I could have watched The scene where Michael Shannon Gives a speech at his father's funeral Because my DVD just decided I didn't need to see it But the rest <laughs> of the movie was good And um, the other one was um, It was Big Willy. They kept talking about Mulberry Street And I went to it once and about 20 minutes into it It just started skipping And out of nowhere there's like Zombie rabid people Attacking in a diner And I had no idea how that happened And then, so returned it, reported my problem, got another copy, put it in, and then realized before I even put it in that it had a huge crack in it. So I don't know what people are doing to the movies you recommend, but um, (laughs) stop. People, DVDs are very fragile. And when you need to share them, you should be nice to them. Okay, that's my goodwill statement of the day. Thank you, guys. Love you as always. Um, That's me. Okay.
1: Bye. All right, that was Emily. Uh, yeah, I don't know if people are uh, what they're doing to DVDs, but uh, if it makes you feel any better, I'm, uh that copy of Shotgun Stories that uh, we might have had the same copy because it skipped at the same spot for me. So uh, there you go. Uh, that, that I think that you know sometimes, unfortunately, I would like to believe that people all handle discs the same way, but we all know that's not true. So. <laughs>
2: Yeah, some used them as coasters and, you know, cat scratch posts and all sorts of nonsense. And it is a shame, but uh, what can you do?
1: Well, it's even worse when people tend to rent them because they're like, oh, well, it's not my copy. So they'll, you know, they'll muck it up with their fingerprints and everything else. Uh, The only piece of advice I can give you is every time I watch a rented DVD, I turn it around and I try to wipe it down as good as possible because I can't stand skipping or back in the old days when you had tracking problems on vhs tapes that was a pain in the ass but skipping on a dvd is a whole world of pain that i can't stand
2: i agree it is so maddening and i have a little bit of a story i have a usual suspects and uh actually no i had rented it because i couldn't find my copy uh my wife had never seen it and it started skipping right at the fucking reveal at the end of the movie oh nice. and then it froze nice <laughs> so the whole build up to the, with this whole film's coming to, and I had to, we couldn't even watch it. I had to explain to her what had happened, which, as you can imagine, lost considerable amount of punch.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if somebody explained to me the end of usual Sus- unusual suspects, I would be like, "What's a big deal?" Because yeah. because I would have nothing. I mean, I just wouldn't think it was that big a deal then. But the, it has an emotional payoff if you see the film. So, mm-hmm. I can understand that. All right, so that's it for feedback uh so you guys might know that we uh have in fact lost our bet to uh the outside the cinema uh butt munches that are over there uh i, I don't know where the word butt munch came from i've been watching beavis and butthead lately um uh, but uh they were so kind as to pick our content uh for next week so they sent over an mp3 so i'm gonna let this play it's about three minutes and uh 48 seconds long let them have their say because you know all's fair in love and war uh we did uh, we did kind of razz them gave them some bad choices uh so let's see what they had to pick are you ready to listen to this yes all right here we go
4: all right it's pay up time gentlemen's guide You decide to dip your toes into the waters outside the cinema shark tank, and now you get bit. So Christopher and I, we have sat down. We have thought long and hard about what films we are going to give these guys. We felt that since, you know, both of our shows kind of deal with uh, the pop world and things that are kind of going on and what's relevant, uh, we figured what better way to uh, punish you guys then revisit some pop gems from a few years, right, Chris? Absolutely. So without further ado, here is the first of your two films. When
3: the world is in trouble, when our future is in danger, we call upon one man. But when he's busy, he calls five girls.
2: Columbia Pictures presents... The Spice Girls. All
5: right, we're coming.
2: In their film debut, Victoria, Emma, Mel B, Jerry and Mel C. They're ready for action. It's a story of love.
5: I think with boys, you should
4: be able to just wheel them in. Yeah, and order them like a pizza. Yeah, no cheese.
3: Compassion and misunderstanding. When the speeding melon hits the wall. It's Christmas for the Crows.
0: What did he
3: say? I haven't a clue.
6: Make your choice. Oh, I like the blonde one. No, 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 no. Sporty.
2: Rock your world. And spice up your life with the Spice Girls. Spice World. Yeah, but can they
4: act? Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, girl power. Feminism. Do you know what I mean? That's right. It's the first on-screen appearance of all five in one movie. With no cohesive plot. Just a bunch of sets and a bunch of costumes and a bunch of girl power. You get Spice World. You know, Chris, as, as daunting as that is, they may enjoy looking at the girls at least. They may. But you know what? We got we got Twilight, which looked good. The cinematography was good, so you gotta give them something to look at before you punish the fuck out of them. Yeah, speaking of punishing the fuck out of them, I'm about to reveal the second film in our list here. <laughs> Yet another pop gem, maybe gone, but is not forgotten. We had to dig deep. Yeah. Without further ado, here is your second film. On June 13th... Come up to Miami. It's not my thing. Music will bring two strangers together. Hey, they to go from the beach. And nothing can come between them. I'm an
6: ask again. Except all their friends.
3: So what does the girl need to do to get
6: you? We're a million hot girls here, and you're still talking about the one girl who blew you off, Kelly Clarkson. I
3: should take a chance.
6: Justin Guarini. This girl's special in the musical event of the summer. Have From Justin to Kelly, rated PG, June 13th, only in
4: theaters. Yes, that is right. Cashing in quicker than you can ever try to imagine is the American Idol film from Justin to Kelly. (laughs) Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it because after what you put us through, you opened up a can of worms that you probably weren't expecting. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And just keep in mind that we fought long and hard to find the perfect picks for you guys. So these are the ones that made it. We even went so far as to find something that have two things in common. Yeah, we decided to give you a theme. Yeah. Because we are such nice guys. Absolutely. Or terrible guys. But either way, enjoy. Can't wait to hear the episode. And good luck. Waiting for the next bet. <laughs> All right. Later.
1: All right. So... What a couple of douchebags. So there we go. That
2: that sums it up. I will say this, gentlemen. You may have won the battle. I can assure you you've not won the war. And you have just brought a knife or two knives to a gunfight. Yeah. Remember I said that yeah. after we win the next
3: bet.
1: The gauntlet has been thrown down to say the least. So next week we will be covering Spice World. And from Justin to Kelly, an American Idol movie, uh, and we promise you, we will still bring the best review possible for these two films.
2: <laughs> and I will say this: I'm not, uh, I'm not all that worried about Spice World. I've heard from friends of mine who look at it as a very guilty pleasure that it's actually kind of funny in a cheesy way. Um, so I'm not that worried. Justin to Kelly may be a little more painful, though. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I, I remember just... seeing that poster when I was when it came out <laughs> in theaters, and I hate it so much. I, I just, it just made me my blood boil.
1: Yeah, it's like lemon juice and a thousand paper cuts. Uh, Justin Kelly, I am not even an American Idol fan. I know you are. Uh, I'm not going to harp on that. Uh, I'll wait till next week. I, I just, oh, the painful. I, I expected that not at all. So they really went a route that I did not expect. But as I said, the gauntlet has been thrown. So
2: we'll see what happens next time. So, so you want to play games? <laughs>
1: Alright, so that is about it for our show this week. We hope you guys enjoyed the first of the Trilogy GTMC shows. We plan on doing a lot more of these. As a matter of fact, to give you guys a heads up, the next one we do plan on doing will be the Penitentiary Trilogy, which we are planning on doing with Miles from Show Show, so be on the lookout for that. It might be a while before it comes out. We do have a listener content month. It might not come out till June, but just to give you guys a heads up, uh, the Penitentiary Trilogy will be next. Um, make sure to check out all of our friends over at com slash forums, all of our good friends over there a lot of great shows over there our sister shows outside the cinema, cinema diabolica of course i want to give a shout out to movie meltdown being that they're nearby here uh check out all those guys over there pop syndicate.com slash forums uh Alyssa, miles I've, uh, everybody's over there um also check out andy's show destroy the brain at destroy the brain uh check out uh, mondo movie of course and don't forget about the chin stroker versus punter guys i still love those guys uh they just do a great job over there, and uh, I think they're in Birmingham, uh, England. So, uh, great stuff. Um, I want to say our you know our email is midnightcinema@gmail.com. It's midnight m i d n i t e cinema@gmail.com. Our voicemail is two zero six 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 five two zero seven. You can check us out on Twitter. Ggtmc. Or it's Twitter.com/slash/ggtmc for me. Uh, Twitter.com/slash/large uh, william for large william and uh, of course, you know. Make sure to get all your hard-to-find cinema purchases at uh, cinema-day-bazaar.com. Uh, we'll get back on reviewing some of their films pretty soon too. We still want to get that review of the Candy Tangerine Man out that we lost, so uh, I can say probably in an upcoming episode we'll probably be doing that again. With the yeah, yeah, and we and also we had a Fulci review in there that we really enjoyed, and we want to do that again. So at some point you'll still hear that uh, Conquest slash Candy Tangerine Man show. So. Look forward to that, and I think that's uh, I think that's about all I got. Do you have? Any, am I forgetting anything?
2: Not that I'm aware of. Go over, vote for us uh, on the website on our website yes. GT, ggtmc.com for Podcast Alley, and uh, and that's all I got.
1: Man. Yeah, definitely do that. And all of a sudden, uh, some of the shows that were uh, getting 90 votes in one day are not getting 90 votes in one day anymore. Some odd things are happening there. So. Definitely vote from our website uh, because it does go to the right link. So please go to GGTMC. There's a little vote option over on the far right. Please go from there because that keeps us in the uh, the hunt. And right now, as of this morning, we were in third place. So nice.
2: But I do want to say this uh, feature has 222 votes through the first, the first six days of the month.
1: Yeah, amazing.
2: Wow. Amazing <laughs> stuff.
1: Guys, if everybody... <laughs> If everybody on my Facebook page voted, uh, I wouldn't. We wouldn't even have that many votes. <laughs> now, no, if everybody the voted on the on the uh, the the Facebook group voted, we would. But I'm talking about the friends I have on Facebook. If everybody voted, we still wouldn't have that many votes to give you an idea. So, yeah, double feature came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah,
2: 222 votes. They're third overall. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So. Anyway, nice. whatever. whatever
1: whatever you got to do, guys. Whatever you got to do. Anyway, uh, that's about yep. all we got for the GG TMC this week. So uh, we hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, tune in next week for our Spice World and from Justin to Kelly reviews. And uh, I think that's about it. So I'll say my adios.
2: Adios.
0: Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at GGTMC You can call the gentleman at two zero six 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 five two zero seven, and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail dot com you better watch yourself.